Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. How do we go from, okay, I have this negative emotion, it's controlling my life, it's got me in this cycle of, I think about this emotion which triggers a chemical reaction, which trains my body to feel that way, which makes it easier, more likely I will do it again, and so now I'm, I'm in this vicious cycle. And unconscious, and it's unconscious. Right, and yeah. you, um, you said, does your thinking create your environment or does your environment create your thinking, which I thought was really, really interesting. So how do we then go from that, like mechanistically, mm-hmm to begin this visualization process of something that's empowering, <clears throat> it's me in a different state, it's my future self, is it meditation, is sure. it, what does that look like? If you're not being defined by a vision of the future, then you're left with the old memories of the past and you will be predictable in your life. And if you wake up in the morning and you're not being defined by a vision of the future, as you see the same people and you go to the same places and you do the exact same thing at the exact same time, it's no longer that your personality is creating your personal reality. Now your personal reality is affecting or creating your personality. Your environment is really controlling how you think and feel unconsciously. Because every person, everything, every place, every experience has a neurological network in your brain. Every experience that you have with every person produces an emotion. So some people will use their boss to reaffirm their addiction to judgment. They'll use their enemy to reaffirm their addiction to hatred. They'll use their friends to reaffirm their addiction to suffering. So now they need the outer world to feel something. So to change then is to be greater than your environment, to be greater than the conditions in your world. And the environment is that seductive. So then why is meditation the tool? Well. Let's sit down, let's close our eyes. Let's disconnect from your outer environment. So if you're seeing less things, there's less stimulation going to your brain. If you're playing soft music or you have earplugs in, less sensory information coming to your brain. So you're disconnecting from your environment. If you can sit your body down and tell it to stay like an animal, stay right here. I'm going to feed you when we're done. You can get up and check your emails. You can do all your texts. But right now, you're going to sit there and obey me. So then when you do that properly, and you're not eating anything or smelling anything or tasting anything, you're not up experiencing and feeling anything, you would have to agree with me that you're being defined by a thought, right? So when the body wants to go back to its emotional past, and you become aware that your attention is on that emotion, and where you place your attention is where you place your energy. You're siphoning your energy out of the present moment into the past. And you become aware of that. And you settle your body back down in the present moment. Because it's saying, well, it's 8 o'clock. You normally get upset because you're in traffic around this time. And here you are sitting and we're used to feeling anger and you're off schedule. 
oh, it's 11 o'clock, and usually check your emails and judge everybody. Well, the body's looking for that, that predictable chemical state. Every time you become aware that you're doing that and your body is craving those emotions and you settle it back down into the present moment, you're telling the body it's no longer the mind, that you're the mind. And now your will is getting greater than the program. And if you keep doing this over and over again, over and over again, over and over again, just like training a stallion or a dog, it's just going to say, I'm going to sit. And the moment that happens... When the body's no longer the mind, when it finally surrenders, there's a liberation of energy. We go from particle to wave, from matter to energy, and we free ourselves from the chains of those emotions that keep us in the, in the familiar past. And we've seen this thousands of times. In fact, we can actually predict it now on a brain scan. Yeah, I found that so interesting. <clears throat> Um, let's go a little bit harder on metacognition, the notion that you don't have to believe everything you think. I love the way that you talk about that. Mm. Yeah, I, we have a huge frontal lobe, and it's 40% of our entire brain. And most people, uh, when they have a thought, they just think that that's the truth. And I think one of my greatest realizations in my own journey was just because you have a thought doesn't necessarily mean it's true. So if you think 60 to 70,000 thoughts in one day, and we do, and 90% of those thoughts are the same thoughts as the day before, and you believe that your thoughts have something to do with your destiny, your life's not going to change very much because the same thought leads to the same choice, the same choice leads to the same behavior, the same behavior creates the same experience, and the same experience produces the same emotion. And so then the act of becoming conscious of this process to, to begin to become more aware of how you think, how you act, and how you feel. It's called metacognition. And so then, why is that important? Because the more conscious you become of those unconscious states of mind and body, the less likely you're going to go unconscious during the day. And that thought is not going to slip by your awareness unchecked because you're, it means to know thyself. And the word meditation means to become familiar with. So as you become familiar with the thoughts, the behaviors, and the emotions of the old self, you're retiring that old self. As you fire and wire new thoughts and condition the body into a new emotional state, if you do that enough times, it'll begin to become familiar to you. So it's so important, uh, just like a garden. If you're planting a garden, you got to get rid of the weeds. you got to take the plants from the past year and you got to pull them out. The rocks that sift to the top that are like our emotional blocks, they have to be removed. The soil has to be tenderized and broken down. We have, to, we have to make room to plant a new garden. So primarily, we learn the most about ourselves and others when we're uncomfortable. Because the moment you move into that uncomfortable state, normally a program jumps in. When that program jumps in, it's because a person doesn't want to be in the present moment and engage it consciously. So when you teach people how to do that with a meditative process, turns out that when they're in their life, they're less likely to emotionally react. They're less likely to be so rigid and believe the thoughts they were thinking. They're more aware of when they go unconscious back into a habit, and that is what starts the process of change. And so we have to unlearn before we relearn. We have to break the habit of the old self before we reinvent the new self. We have to prune synaptic connections and sprout new connections. We have to unfire and unwire and refire and rewire. We have to unmemorize emotions that are stored in the body then recondition the body to a new mind and to a new motion, like deprogram and reprogram. That's the act. 
and it's a two-step process. Yeah, I like the way that you call that out as an action. There was another thing that you said that I thought was really powerful about how insights themselves are essentially inert. They don't do anything. Um, what, what then do we do with an insight? How do we take a breakthrough moment and make sure that it's not just a breakthrough moment? Like I guarantee people watching right now are having like 100 aha moments. For sure, that was definitely the case for me as I was researching you. And when you said that, I was like, and that's the danger, that you yeah. have the aha and then nothing. Yeah, yeah, and that's, it's a, it is a danger because then people will, will shrink back into mediocrity and they'll use the insight to excuse them from taking a leap. They'll say, yeah, you know, I have a chemical imbalance in my brain. Yeah, my father was really overbearing. He was a perfectionist. That's why I am the way I am. You know, people, they, they come up with stuff to, to excuse themselves. The insight is actually giving them permission to stay limited. And it's, 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 it's an amazing idea because they'll say to you that they really want to get over their anxiety. But let's, okay, let's take your ex-husband. Let's put him in a straitjacket. Let's duct tape him and shoot him to the moon. Now what? I mean, what are you going to do now? You still have to make those changes. And so then when the person's enemy dies or their something shifts in their life and that person's gone, they'll find another person to hate. This is just how we function as human beings. We just slide another uh, reason to feel those emotions. So I think, I think when people start to understand this, you know, I, I think knowledge is power, but knowledge about yourself is self-empowerment. So how much of this is really learning to, to just bifurcate the world into there's negative emotions that have negative neurochemistry associated with and you said that in those states, if you're living in a perpetual state of uh, stress hormones and things like that, illness is like a step away. And then just the other side of that is understanding, but there's this whole other side of positive energy, which mm -hmm. happiness, joy, empowerment, whatever that you know, neurochemical cocktail is, but that when you're on that side, um, your immune system is more likely to function well. Like, is that... Uh, just sort of bringing it down to like a really base level? Yeah, is yeah. that sort of one of the big things? <clears throat> well, let's talk about it in terms of survival or creation. As I said, 70% of the time, people live in stress. And living in stress is living in survival. Now, all organisms in nature can tolerate short-term stress. You know, a deer gets chased uh, uh, by a pack of coyotes. When it outruns the coyotes, it goes back to grazing and the event is over. And the definition of stress is when your brain and body are knocked out of balance, out of homeostasis. The stress response is what the body innately does to return itself back to order. So you're driving down the road, someone cuts you off, you jam on the brakes, you may give them the finger, and then you settle back down and the event is over and boom, now everything's back, back to normal. But what if it's not a predator that's waiting for you uh, outside the cave, but what if it's your coworker? sitting right next to you, and all day long you're turning on those chemicals because they're pushing all your emotional buttons. When you turn on the stress response and you can't turn it off, now you're headed for a disease because no organism in nature can live in emergency mode for that extended period of time. It's a scientific fact that the hormones of stress downregulate genes and create disease, long-term effects. Human beings, because of the size of the neocortex, we can turn on the stress response just by thought alone. We can think about our problems and turn on those chemicals. That means then our thoughts could make us sick. So if it's possible that our thoughts could make us sick, is it possible then our thoughts could make us well? And the answer is absolutely yes. 
So then, what are the emotions that are connected to survival? Let's name them. Anger, aggression, hostility, hatred, competition, fear, anxiety, worry, pain, suffering, guilt, shame, unworthiness, envy, jealousy. Those are all created by the hormones of stress. And, and psychology calls them normal human states of consciousness. I call those altered states of consciousness. So then we tend to remember those traumatic events more because in survival, you better be ready if it happens again. That's, and, and in the survival gene is switched on, you could have 10 really great things that happen to you in your day. And you just have one bad thing that happens and you cannot take your attention off that bad, that, that unhappy thing because the survival gene is switched on. It's really interesting. How does epigenetics come into play in all this? Like what's actually happening? You've talked pretty profoundly about um, proteins and like really at a deep level how we're signaling to our genetics to create these kinds of changes. <clears throat> what does that actually look like? Well, uh, epigenetics, epi means above the gene. And uh, many years ago, after the DNA helix was discovered by Watson and Crick, uh, they said the blueprints of life, you know, all diseases are created from genes. It turns out less than 5%, more like 1% of people on the planet are born with a genetic condition like type 1 diabetes or Tay-Sachs disease or sickle cell anemia. The other 95 to 99% are created by lifestyle and by choices. You can take two identical twins, exact same genome. One dies at 51, the other one dies at 85. <laughs> same gene, different environment. So all of a sudden they said, we lied. That was wrong. It's not genes that create disease. It's the environment that signals the gene that creates disease. Well, okay. But that's not the whole truth, too, because you could have two people working side by side in the same factory. One gets cancer after being exposed to a carcinogenic for 25 years. Both working for 25 years, the other one has no cancer at all. So there must be some internal order that would cause one person to not get it while another one does. So is it possible then, if the environment signals the gene, and it does, and the end product of an experience in the environment is called an emotion, can you signal the gene ahead of the environment by embracing an elevated emotion? We've done the research on this. We measured 7,500 different gene expressions in a group of people that came to an advanced event for four days. And we had them doing a seated meditation, a walking meditation, a laying down meditation, a standing meditation. And at the end of four days, just four days, the common eight genes that were upregulated, two genes to suppress cancer cells and tumor growth, Two genes for neurogenesis, the growth of new neurons in response to novel experiences and learning. The gene that signals stem cells to go to damaged areas and repair them. The gene for oxidative stress was upregulated. We started seeing all these genes that are very, very healthy to cause the body to flourish. Imagine if people were doing that for three months. We also measured telomeres, the little uh, shoestrings on the end of DNA that tell us our biological age. We asked people to do the work, meditation, five out of seven days for 60 days. Measure their telomeres that determine their biological age. 60 days later, 74% of the people lengthen their telomeres. 40% significant change. 20% a very remarkable change. That means that they got a little bit of their life back. If it lengthened by 10%, 
they got 10% of their life back. So, so Billy Buckner, who just passed away recently, was uh, an incredible an eight-time gold glove, a great baseball player for the Boston Red Sox. Well, he made a mistake. You guys know I have a very strict diet that I stick to, except for very special occasions. And I do that so that I can bring my best every day to what I'm doing. And a big part of that strict diet is high-quality animal protein and my go-to source of trustworthy meats and seafoods with no added hormones or antibiotics ever is ButcherBox. ButcherBox is a premium meat subscription service that delivers 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, pork raised crate-free, and wild-caught seafood all directly to your door. I cannot recommend ButcherBox enough. When you eat ButcherBox, you are giving your body the best possible building blocks to work with so you can reach your full potential. You've got to take care of yourself at a cellular level if you want to hit your peak consistently. So ButcherBox is the key. Sign up at butcherbox.com impact and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off, and that means you can choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com impact and use code impact to choose your free-for-a-year offer, plus get $20 off your first order. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You will never be able to reach your full potential if you are riddled with stress and have a lot weighing on your mind. I can tell you from my own experiences with stress and negative thought loops, you have to find a way to work through whatever it is that's weighing on you if you're going to have any hope of achieving your goals. Therapy can be an option for working through things, and for an online therapy option that is super convenient and flexible, be sure to check out BetterHelp. With BetterHelp, everything is 100% online, and getting started is quick and easy. A brief questionnaire matches you with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no extra charge. Get things off your chest, process through things with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash impact theory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash impact theory. In today's highly unpredictable and rapidly changing world, the smartest move you can make from a financial standpoint is to actually understand how money works and how markets move. Because if you want to have any chance of investing your money wisely and growing your financial portfolio, you have to make a profit. And the only way that you're going to do that is either by setting and forgetting or actually understanding what's going on at a macro level. So whether you're a seasoned investor or someone looking for extra guidance, today's sponsor, Yahoo Finance, has got you covered with all the tools, data, and news that you need in one place to grow your knowledge base around what is happening in the world of finance and to make sure that you have the right goals and you're executing well. Yahoo Finance makes it easy to consolidate your accounts so you can effectively and efficiently manage your entire portfolio. Personally, I love how straightforward their platform is to use. It is very simple to get the information that I need. And Impact Theory's own chief financial officer is exactly the same, spending time helping me frame exactly what is going on from a global perspective so that I'm making the smartest decisions that I can. I definitely recommend that you check out Yahoo Finance for comprehensive financial news and analysis. Visit the incredible brand that so many great investors use at yahoofinance.com. It's the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Once again, guys, head there now 
yahoofinance.com. Stake in sports, that would be one of the biggest sport bloopers in history. And in 1986, he let the game-winning run score on a ground ball through his legs that ultimately would give the Mets the World Series. Mm -hmm. Now, I was just watching an ESPN E60 Jeremy Schapp story and I saw an interview that was done in 1990 that resurfaced in 1995 where Buckner was interviewed 12 days before the World Series. And he said, you know, the dreams are to win, you know, to win the World Series. And the nightmare would be for me to let the game winning run score on a ground ball through my legs. You know, and then ultimately that's exactly what would happen. Now, by saying that out loud, what did he do? He didn't make it happen, but he increased the probability. And this is what I want people to understand. Your internal thoughts are all over the place. I, I want to push on that. Yeah. Do you think that he makes it more likely because it's going to subtly influence his behavior or because you're talking to some magical deity that then says, well, you said it, and so I'm going to make it happen? I think that what he did is a subconscious plant. By verbalizing it and knowing that it's 10 times more powerful, he's planting it in his subconscious. He's mm -hmm. not, he doesn't want it to happen but it becomes something that's ultimately on his mind and he gave it more power by verbalizing it. And then wasn't there somebody that said, oh, I, I worry that I'm gonna retire and die at 40 of a heart attack? Right, so, so Pistol Pete Maravich, uh, a basketball player, I'll give you two other examples, but, but he was interviewed at 26 years old and he said, you know, I don't wanna play 10 years of pro basketball and die at the age of 40 of a heart attack. Well, he played 10 years of pro basketball and in Pasadena, California, died of a heart attack at 40. There's another great story that I saw um, from a magazine called Success Unlimited in 1973. A guy is hired to fix a refrigerated boxcar in back of a train. He goes into the train. He panics, gets himself locked inside the boxcar. So now he's pounding on the door. There's nothing to do. He starts to panic and thinks he's going to freeze to death. He finds a pen. He starts writing down, Tom, what's going through his mind. And he writes down, I'm becoming colder. As people, one of the things we do to ourselves is observe and report. I'm not playing well. I'm having a bad day. We're having a bad quarter. My marriage isn't going well. We observe and report. Still colder now, he writes. Nothing to do but wait. Half asleep, I could hardly write. Finally, he says, these may be my last words. And I'll show you the article. They open up the boxcar many hours later, and they find him, and he's dead. But the temperature inside the boxcar was 56 degrees. That's so crazy. The freezing apparatus was broken. There was plenty of air in the boxcar. There was no physical reason for his death. The best they could say is somehow he talked himself into dying. And as you know, the book covers the psychogenic death in and around the Korean War. Mm. When the Korean War, one third of all American POWs died. And they said that one of the things that was done in the POW camps was the negativity. They manufactured articles about the United States being bombed. They withheld all positivity. They didn't give them any mail. Believe it or not, there are like... Uh, regulations for POW camps throughout the world and ultimately they filled up these healthy American soldiers with all this doubt a, a, a priest would end up calling it give up itis and healthy American soldiers over a period of days would walk over to a corner sit down and die of broken hearts so negativity is the most powerful thing we're combating look at our politics today a positive message versus a negative message it's no, no, no chance. Have you ever read Man's Search for Meaning? 
I haven't read that. Oh, Tell me gosh, about you're going to love it. So Man's Search for Meaning, Victor Frankl, in a concentration camp. Oh, yes, yes, camp. yes, yes. It's actually in multiple. If I remember right, he was in five different concentration camps. Yes. And ultimately, um, he says that he you could tell within 72 hours when someone was going to die because they would give up. Yep. And he said once they gave up, then it was a 72-hour clock. They no longer knew why they were fighting, and, and they would just die. Right. And he was like, but the people that kept a mental image of what they were suffering for, like what it was right. they were gonna do once they got out for their family, for whatever, he said that they would push through. And it just, I mean, look, there's obviously a million and one reasons to die in a concentration camp. Right. But the fact that even in the concentration camp, they could go, I, 72 hours, we can peg it right. because we've seen that person give up. Right. Like, that's just crazy to me. Well, and, and, and I just think when, when I think about being seven years old in the Tacoma Golf and Country Club and walking off the golf course and my dad, you know, everybody called him Mr. Positive and this and that. But in fairness to my dad, when he was raised and he was teaching, the only thing was positive and negative. So if you weren't negative, you had to be positive. But that just never made sense to me. And if we could just learn how to not be negative, how to not externalize negative, then ultimately that would help them more than ever trying to be told to be positive. I love what you say, just shut your mouth. I thought that was, you've said it even more aggressively. More than aggressively. I, I, I think it's super fucking powerful. So right. what do you mean by that? Why is that so critical? Well, if, if just if you follow the data and you say stupid shit out loud, ultimately you're predicting and perpetuating exactly what you don't want to have happen. And who's always in control of what Tom Billyu says? You're always in control of what you say. People say, yeah, but I can't. The thinking, everybody's fucked up in the thoughts. I've been with people the night before Super Bowl, the night before national championships, eight different times where the doubt's there, but we're not externalizing it. And then I'll have people say, well, what, do you want me to lie? I'm not telling you to lie. I'm telling you that if you look at the information and you say, I don't want to be here today. I hate this job. God dang. They, or, or you look at Mohamed Sanu. They're, down, they're up 28-3 in the Super Bowl playing against Tom Brady. And he looks at his friend and says, hey, man, they still got Tom Brady on their side. There is no lead that's safe. Well, fuck, why are you saying that? Mm. You know, and, and you're almost predicting that that's what's going to happen. Now, ultimately, not saying stupid things out loud is you have to create an alternative. So I started thinking about a car. If a car's going backwards, it can't automatically go forward. So it has to, to shift into neutral, and then it stops. Then at that point, you can either go forward by changing your behavior or you can go backwards by doing the same stupid shit you were just doing. Neutral is truth-based thinking. What's the truth? Okay? In 2010, you're running a, a, a data loss company, right? You've been doing it for eight years. You graduated from USC film. You're, that's not what you want to do. You're 60 pounds overweight. You lose your weight. You find two buddies, and you say, hey, man, uh, we're going to go into my kitchen. We're going to find a way to, to create a product that's going to be different than anything anybody knows. Well, I'm educated in this because I partnered with Gatorade Sports Science Institute at IMG, and I, you know, and you created a value proposition that ultimately, you know, based upon you didn't let your past predict your future, you used your past was real, but I want to be do something different. So this you behave. Is, this is this is a really interesting part of what you say that the past isn't predictive. Correct. So talk to me more about that because I, I would say most people would say that the past is definitely predictive. Right, which is great, but they'd be wrong. <laughs> right. So they would be wrong, and the simple fact of the matter is the past is real. Okay. So the only thing that makes it predictive is if my behavior stays the same. So I'll give you a great story. Um, so we both grew up in Tacoma. 
and there used to be a, a thing called Toastmasters. I don't know if you remember Toastmasters, but Toastmasters was a local, regional, and a national speaking group for anybody that wanted to get better at speaking. <clears throat> well, my dad had gone to a Toastmasters early on and heard one of the most successful magazine entrepreneurs in the world speak. He comes back and tells me, I just had a chance to hear one of the most successful magazine entrepreneurs in the world speak. And he said, when are you taking your SAT? I said, I'm taking it next year. He said, well, this guy was failing out of high school. He was struggling. He was raised by a single mom in the Midwest, but he promised his mother he would take a test called the SAT. So he takes the SAT in May, his junior year, doesn't expect anything, gets his score back in June. Now the SAT, which I don't know how many your population know, but it's, it's a standardized test with a math part and a verbal part. Both are scored out of 800 points. Well, this guy takes it. He's, he's bombing. He's failing out of school. He doesn't expect anything as he's telling the story at Toastmasters. Well, he gets a 1480 out of 1600. So he's stunned, right? That would be for the smart That's people that listen to your podcast. insane, yeah. Right, cognitive dissonance. Right? I got a like, 900 on my SATs just right. to give people a frame. Right, and I got a, a 1090, excuse me. And I got a 1010, right? I was just, hey, four digits. <laughs> it was a miracle, right? And, and, but it's a hard test, and it, you, you know, it's a variety of different things. So he gets the score, and his mother, doing what any mother would do knowing her kids, says, did you cheat? Right? She knows her son. And he says, I swear to God, I tried to cheat, but the way the numbers were and the scantrons and the bubbles, you couldn't cheat. So she says, you mean to tell me you really got that score? He said, yeah, I got the score. So he's stunned, Tom. So as my dad's telling me the story, I'm like, okay. So he says, all right. So what he decides is because he realizes he's smart and he's going into his senior year, he says, I'm going to go to class. Now he starts to go to class. He doesn't hang out with who he did when he didn't go to class. All right. Teachers see him in class and they said, hey, maybe Franklin Pierce, maybe we missed the boat on this kid. So they start to treat him differently. Well, as the guy would tell the story, he graduates, goes to a community college, goes on to Wichita State, goes on to the Ivy League, and becomes this massively successful magazine entrepreneur. So I said, okay, well, the guy was always smart. He just needed a standardized test to unlock it. My dad said, no, that's not the story. And this is what I want you to understand. He said, 12 years after all this guy's success, he gets a letter in the mail from Princeton, New Jersey doesn't think anything about it. The next day, his wife says, you're going to open it. He opens it. True story, turns out the SAT board will periodically review their test-taking procedures and the policies. The year he took the test, he was one of 13 people sent the wrong SAT score. His actual score was a 740 out of 1600. <laughs> and he said, people think my whole life changed when I got the 1480. But what happened? My whole life changed when I started acting like a 1480. And what does a 1480 do? He goes to class. Well, this is one of the first stories I would share when I had my opportunity at Alabama or Florida State or Georgia. So A, your language is powerful, but number two, your behavior is way ahead of your success. And so many people let their feelings dictate what they do as opposed to throw your behavior out there. Russell Wilson's 5'10". He shouldn't be playing pro football, but he behaves like the best quarterback in the country. And he's done that since before he was at that level. And then his feelings and emotions and his skill caught up to that behavior. I think the lesson my dad was trying to teach me um, ultimately was in addition to my language, what I do, not how I feel about my past is going to determine who I am in the future. And that's what I think neutral thinking is. And I think neutral thinking isn't just thinking. I think it's behavior. And I think it's language. And so your behavior is what's going to change you. But you also have to start by asking yourself, what do I want and why do I want it? Why don't I have it? You know, what am I willing to do to get it? And I do think in, in terms of listening to, to one of your earlier podcasts, 
I do think there's value in writing things down, but in a really simple way. Um, I've learned probably the most things through the best athletes in the world. And Michael Johnson, who had the gold shoes, I'll never forget, Drew Brees were, were training for the NFL Combine in 2001. There's 18 guys. Michael just finished winning his fourth gold medal, and he comes in, and he's just, just a badass dude. Fastest man alive at that Fastest point. Fastest man alive at that point. Um, he had just run uh, the 43-18, um, you know, and then when he ran the 19-3, it was uh, 26 miles per hour. The fastest, the fastest oh. 50 to 150, he ran 9-1 flat. So all these athletes were in awe of Michael. And I, I think Drew at the time says, hey, man, do you set goals? He said, yeah. He said, where'd you learn? He said, what do you mean, where'd I learn? He said, where'd you learn? Like, do you learn in college? He said, I didn't learn in college. He said, did you learn, like, smart goals? Like, what the fuck are smart goals? You know, and smart goals are specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and with the time frame. And Michael said, when I would go into Safeway, I recognized that if I walked into Safeway and I wrote eight things down, I would walk into Safeway and I'd walk out of Safeway in five minutes. If I walked into Safeway and had nothing written down, I would be in there for 20 minutes and I'd find myself on aisle eight and I'd be anxious and I'd be nervous and I'd be, why am I looking at the wheat thins and the ho-hos when I know I don't need any of those things? And he said, so because I wrote it down in Safeway and it worked, I figured why would I be any different about my athletic career? And I think that that's the level that we need to educate people. I hope it takes what it takes basically is an introduction to self-help that when I look at mindfulness being the brand and, and uh, headspace being a billion dollar valuation and I sit there and think at you know 44 years old and growing up in this my whole life the only time I can meditate is at the end of church it's such a challenging skill and is it important Absolutely, it's important. Do our affirmations important? Absolutely, they're important. Are changing from the inside out important? Yes, but they're not the starting points. Don't say stupid shit out loud. Be mindful of what you consume. If I watch three minutes of news, it increases my probability by 27%. I'm going to say I had a shitty day. That's crazy. Right? When I was going through, and you know, when I was going through uh, a divorce, I had a lawsuit, I had some health challenges, all these different types of things. If I'm listening to Jake Owen, or Sam Hunt, I love New Country, but New Country makes me just want to go run and jump off a cliff. You know, it makes me think I'm never going to meet another girl ever again in my life, which I hope is not true. You know, and, and so what are the things that are in our control? What we watch when we get home, what we listen to when we're in our car, who we talk to when we get on our cell phone, and what we say out loud always as we speak. And I think that those are the powerful things. And ultimately, our behavior is what's going to define our success. Mm. Yeah, I love that, man. It really does all come down to behavior. And that all of this boils down to what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, which brings me to a concept that you got from your dad about hope and how powerful that is. How can people use hope? Why does it matter? How does that fit into this equation? Yeah, I, I think my dad's belief was when you become helpless, you become hopeless. And when I feel like I can control my behavior, when I feel like I'm in control of, even if I'm going through cancer, even if I'm going through a difficult challenge, even if I'm going through a reorg in a business, you know, if, if I still feel like, okay, this is not optimal, but there's something I can do, then I'm helpful to myself. And when I'm helpful, I'm hopeful. And when I'm helpless, I'm hopeless. So my dad's belief always was to make hope a habit. 
and, and that hope is the most powerful medicine that we all have. And then I think we have to believe that we can influence our future. You know, we've got to believe. I believe that no matter what I'm facing, I can influence my future. That just because my first marriage didn't work, that doesn't mean my second marriage won't. But it's incumbent upon me to be better. Right? And that's where if I'm spending time, well, she didn't do this, she didn't do, there's nothing I can do about that. Right? But that's true. And that's where you're talking about, well, the past feels predictive. Right? Well, I thought, you know, hey, what, what are you going to do to be different going forward? But so many people think the self-help industry is about things you do. I think one of the things that makes athletes so incredible is what they're willing not to do, what they're willing not to say, what they're willing not to eat, what they're, what they're willing not to consume, what they're willing not to watch. That's what makes, think about, it's January 2020, what are five things you cannot do right now that will instantly make your life better? Talk to me about the illusion of choice. Yeah. I think that's so powerful. You know, it was, re it was really fascinating. So um, I was, um, you know, obviously I've worked in the sports world for a long time, and I was, my first NBA team was the Memphis Grizzlies. And guys love college football. And Vince Carter, uh, who's 42 now, the same age as Tom Brady, and still playing in the NBA, plays for Atlanta. Vince was about 37 at the time. And we had just had three players arrested at one of the programs I was headed to Whoa. in one night. Like we hit our quota for <laughs> like for a night. And Vince and I were talking. He loved college football. And he said, he said, uh, how many of those guys, Trev, want to play in the NBA or in the NFL? And I said, probably seven out of ten. And he said, and isn't it crazy? They think they can do whatever they want and still make it to that level. And I said, what do you mean? He said, he said, well, I'm 37. I'm still playing in the NBA. You think I can do whatever I want? I said, what do you mean? Yeah, I do think you can. He said, no, my choices are finite. I said, what do you mean? Like choice is an illusion? He said, choice is absolutely an illusion. There's a set of behaviors that I do that allow me to play at 37. I can't slam dunk the ball now. Yes, I can still slam dunk, but if I slam dunk, it takes its toll on my knees and I can't get back and play defense fast enough. So when I get down, I lay the ball up more times than not. I don't eat fast food after games. I lift weight every day of games. And I said, so choice is an illusion. He said, yeah. And I ended up going at that point, he was heading over to the University of Alabama. And we sort of coined the idea of the illusion of choice. There are no choices. When you decide, when you decided you wanted to build, you didn't decide you wanted to build a billion dollar empire, but you decided you wanted to make a different type of uh, nutritional bar, correct? Mm. Did you start with the bar? And so there was, there was either going to be a way that you did it or there was going to be the way and there was going to be a way that tasted just like muscle milk or there was going to be a way that was going to be different. And you either did it or you didn't, correct? Yeah. And you were either going to commit the time, and I'm just using you as an example, but if I want to have a good relationship, I saw a statistic that said the average married couple talks 27 minutes a week. I was talking to some of my buddies about that and they're like, that much? Where did I find all the time? But uh, that's obviously not a good statistic. Well, are you born with the gift to make time for people? No, it's a behavior. So to me, the illusion of choice is thinking you can have a good marriage and talk 27 minutes a week. So you have to make time in order to talk. And maybe you're on the road. You travel a lot. Turning your TV off when you're on the road. Doing simple better. Turning the TV off, turning the light off, and just engaging in a conversation. 
you know, if you're engaging with your kids, there's a way to do it and there's a way not to do it. Thinking you have an infinite amount of choices is idiotic. And this generation right now, Generation Z and Generation Y, both think they can do whatever the fuck they want to do and, and still achieve things. You can achieve whatever you want to do in many cases if you're willing to get behind the behaviors that drive that success. But it won't be anything. Pete Carroll for the Seahawks, he'll let you go to bed at 5 in the morning if you want, as long as you can perform to a 9.5 standard when you get there. Okay? Well, what you're going to figure out is you can't go to bed at 5 in the morning. Okay? So you're going to have to adapt your behavior to get in alignment with winning behaviors. So the illusion of choice is this fact that there are not an infinite amount of choices. There may be options. Yeah, I can get uh, uh, pasta instead of a cheeseburger. But even if I want to maintain a diet or maintain optimal health, then I have to limit how much calorie intake, uh, what type of fluids. When I, when I first lost weight, I, I didn't understand that Gatorade had 800 calories in it. You know when you drink those four Gatorades, even though all you're eating is Lunchables, you're actually like, driving all these calories. And it's just, am I doing simple better? If you strive to perform your best in life, bringing your energy and abilities into everything you do, then it only makes sense that you would want to be out on the road with that same power, agility, and performance that everyone expects from you. And there's no better option than the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable SUV yet, the third generation Range Rover Sport. You guys know I love staying on the cutting edge with technology, and the Range Rover Sport's cabin features advanced technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, a must, offering you and your family and friends new levels of comfort and refinement while traveling. The Range Rover Sport provides an instinctive drive with engaging on-road dynamics and redefines sporting luxury for the power, agility, and performance you demand in every area of your life. Explore the Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. One way I make sure my business is moving in the right direction is to ensure we are constantly becoming more efficient. Because in my experience, inefficiencies will eat away your profits and leave you with a dying business. But with the right technology, your business can get the insights it needs to become efficient and ultimately unstoppable. And that is why I recommend you check out NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all of it into one platform and one source of truth. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors that are massively inefficient. Guys, inflation is no joke. So check out NetSuite and see how you can cut costs and boost performance at the same time, like the 37,000 companies that have already made the switch. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Do not wait. Head right now to netsuite.com slash theory. Again, that's netsuite.com slash theory. Get the information you need. Head to netsuite.com slash theory. Today, we're going to be talking about limiting beliefs, how to get out from under them, how to move forward if you've struggled with something in the past. It is critically important to get your belief structure right, to make sure that you don't believe things consciously or subconsciously that are going to throttle your actions. The end of the day, the only thing that matters 
by your behaviors, but your behaviors are driven entirely by your beliefs. Get your beliefs right and everything else will line up. All right, first question. What should I do to identify the self-limiting beliefs that are holding me back? Okay, this is one of those things that instead of trying to get in and identify all the different self-limiting beliefs that you have, what I would start doing is focusing on building a growth mindset. Now, one, read Carol Dweck's book called Mindset. It is absolutely the right place to start. Uh, at the end of that book, you will have learned a very simple truth. It is what I call the only belief that matters, which is that if I put time and energy into getting better at something, I will actually get better. That is a belief that will align your behaviors because at the end of the day, instead of, like I said, going through and finding all the self-limiting beliefs, just start layering on these empowering beliefs. So one, you can get better at anything at any time. So putting time and energy into getting better at something will reward you with actual skill set, and skill set has utility. Now, if you believe that and you think of yourself as the learner, as you encounter a limiting belief, I can never do that, I'm not a good dancer, I can't sing, whatever the thing is you tell yourself, then it just becomes a question of, well, if I know that I can get better at anything, the question is, do I want to put time into getting better at this thing? And if I don't want to spend time getting better at this thing, then don't BS myself. Don't say I'm not, oh, I'm just not good at that. Just say, I don't care enough about that thing to want to put in the energy to try and get better. Now, another thing that can be very um, freeing. So for instance, I really wish I could sing. I also really wish I could draw. Those are two things that I really want. But the truth is, when I say that I really want them, what I mean is that I really wish they came easily to me. And once I finally was honest with myself that I wanted to get what I'll call disproportionate returns, that when Lisa spends time getting better at drawing, she gets like 10x return on her time. It's insane. She is a world-class artist. If I put the same amount of time into getting better at drawing, I might get a 0.6 return on my time. So I'm going to get better, but it's like, whew, that same unit of energy could be used on many other things and I would get a much better return than I would focus on drawing. Same with singing. There's no doubt. I could get a hundred times better at either of them, but at what cost? It would take so much time and energy. So be very thoughtful that you're layering on these empowering beliefs and then being honest about how you want to spend your time. Once you get that balance right and you realize you can do anything you want, but you can't do everything you want and that things have to be put in priority order, then it becomes very clarifying that it's not even necessarily the, that you have a limiting belief. It's that you're being honest with yourself about what you do and don't want to pursue. So the key is to hold tight to that only belief that matters, that you can get good at anything. Now, once you have it, just ask yourself, how badly do I want that thing? Next. Can you explain what initiatives I could take that will help me create the same discipline that you have so that I might have more confidence in what I can accomplish? Okay, so first of all, you've got to instill in your mind that the average human is capable of unbelievable improvement. That's, that's the thing that's my superpower. I don't think I'm special. I just realized in looking at the science that humans actually are capable of this incredible amount of change. It is the strategy that our species took to be able to pass knowledge on through culture rather than having to have everything be instincts. 
And in having that layer where we can drink in the culture and read books and learn from other people. And, you know, even now we're all learning from things that people thought thousands of years ago and wrote down like it's insane. It travels through to you and all of that wisdom stored in culture so that as your parents are teaching you things, they're actually encapsulating a ton of the wisdom that is endured, whether it's endured from religion or books or whatever, like you're bathed in a culture that is giving you all of this incredible information. And so recognizing how powerful and potent that is, is incredibly meaningful. But you have to understand that you have to allow yourself to believe that you can learn from that culture in the same way that everybody else can. And that's what you're designed to do. Now, for me, that completely gave me the confidence, and I put confidence in air quotes because it's not like, I believe something specific about myself. I just believed that the human animal is capable of this extraordinary change. And so now I just needed to point myself in that direction. Now, once, this is the key, once I realized that I could get better at anything, it dawned on me that how I spend my time is a spiritual consideration. And I didn't want to die with potential that I failed to turn into skill set. That to me, that speaks to me. How much of my potential can I actually turn into skill set and get good at this stuff and push and grow and improve? Like that to me is just this incredibly intoxicating loop. So for me, the discipline, the confidence, all of that comes from recognizing human, the human animal, nothing special about me. The human animal is capable of extraordinary change. I'm going to have to put time and energy into doing it, but I'm capable of getting this change. Therefore, I can do anything I set my mind to. Therefore, it really matters what I choose to spend my time on. Therefore, I want to put structure and discipline in my life so that I can move forward on things that excite me, that matter to me, because I really can have this big, crazy dream that I'm thinking of. So my discipline is really born of my desire to have that thing coupled with my belief that I can actually get there. Desire and belief. Get those two things right, and the discipline will take care of itself. All right? What steps did you take as you navigated challenging your belief systems daily, especially in the beginning, when you didn't have enough momentum to internalize the new and improved belief? Okay, again, a lot of this goes back to the big breakthrough for me was brain science. And I'm laying on the floor of my unfurnished apartment. I'm in a dark place in my life. I'm not happy. I don't know how to make my dreams come true. I'm very worried that I'm not enough, that I'm not smart enough, I'm not capable enough. This is in my early 20s. And I don't remember, I think it was something that started in college, but I don't remember exactly what made me decide that I was going to read about the brain, but I did. I decided I was going to read about the brain. And in reading about the brain, I started coming across this idea of brain plasticity. And this is in the late 90s, early 2000s. It's being hotly debated amongst the smartest people on the planet as to whether or not it's real. And I decided one day, you know what? Maybe it's not, but I'm going to act as if it's real. And in acting as if it's real, I ended up finding out that it actually is real because I was getting so much better at things. I was like, whoa, this is incredible. And so what I was doing was learning this information on the key insight that I was going to act as if I could get better at something, right? The thing I call the only belief that matters. I was going to act as if that were true. 
By doing that, I saw that it really was true. And now the belief took care of itself because I saw it empirically in the data. And that is the, like, the big thing for me that I didn't need to believe I was special. I just saw that this process works. And so now my beliefs began to shift, not around like magical thinking, they were shifting around what I was actually seeing and what I was reading about in the literature. And that to me is it, man. I don't know what else to tell people. It's like, we are so capable of improving our skill set. And by improving our skill set, we are we can fundamentally alter our ability to change the world around us. And as you realize, whoa, building these skills lets me actually change the world around me. Now, all of a sudden, it's just sort of one belief after another begins to implant itself in your mind based on what you're able to do. And then as you hit a roadblock and you stumble and you fall, that's sort of that next thing. How do you deal with failure and all of that? But as you work through this stuff, I ended up compiling 25 beliefs, which you can actually download for free. Just type uh, impact theory belief system. And you will see the 25 things that I onboarded into my mind in order to have the kind of success that I have now. And what I was trying to onboard is really just the principles of a growth mindset and the things that you need to do and believe in order to constantly be moving towards your goals. It's really rudimentary. It isn't me making things up. It is simply me looking at the nature of the way the human mind works in concert with all these other people and the society that we've created for ourselves. And if you act in the following ways, if you believe the following things, if you create the following rules, then you will move forward. It just is the physics of the human experience. So you can shortcut it by going and reading the 25 beliefs, um, or you can just start with that same core first principle of humans can improve at anything they put the time and energy into improving in. And then, then it's just like, you see it play out in your life. Also, you could go to the gym. The gym, in fact, this is one of the things that I did. By changing your body, you will realize, oh my God, if I'm disciplined, consistent, and I learn about this stuff, I can radically transform my body. Once you see that you can transform your body, you really start to believe that you can transform anything. The body is an extraordinary way to get to the mind. So I would leverage that as well. My self-limiting beliefs stem from childhood trauma. What suggestions do you have that might help me overcome them? Okay, so this unfortunately is something that comes up a lot. And one, I just want you to know, trust me when I say you are not alone. So many people are struggling with childhood trauma. And one, I wanna say that having a professional therapist work with you on this is probably going to be the right answer without knowing exactly what it is you're struggling with. It becomes very hard to help somebody deal with it. But I can tell you that a lot of times what ends up happening is people end up feeling that their self-worth is diminished and they don't believe that they're worth um, getting rid of the limiting beliefs. And they think that they are damaged or um, compromised in some way. And so one, recognizing that that just is not true and that you absolutely are worth it, and that the only thing that makes sense is to adopt one of the beliefs that really changed my life, which is that the only thing that makes sense is to only do and believe that which moves you towards your goals. So even if it were true that you are worth less, it doesn't 
help you get towards your goal to believe that. And if we're only going to do that which moves us towards our goals, then immediately when we begin thinking that we're worth less, we don't have to convince ourselves that it isn't true. We only need to realize it doesn't move us towards our goals. And since we only do that which moves us towards our goals, we're going to pattern interrupt immediately the second we start playing that loop because we've got to break the habit of thinking that about ourselves. So we're gonna pattern interrupt that we don't allow ourselves to think that anymore. It's done. It's just not an effective strategy. And that was a big deal for me because the thing that I was struggling with was I'm not smart enough to pull this off. And by believing that, then I didn't try. And as long as I didn't try, I was never going to fail, which of course was the thing I was trying to protect myself from, but I was also never going to succeed. And so finally, what I had to realize was because my behaviors were being dictated by my beliefs. I could not allow myself to believe something even if I was convinced it was true. I couldn't allow myself to believe it because it would stop me from taking the behaviors that would lead me to learning, growing, getting better, and moving forward. And so you, it's not that easy. Childhood trauma is wicked. It is so pernicious. It gets inside your mind and it won't let go. And depending on how early in childhood, there's a lot of brain development around that trauma. But I'm just saying one of the things that we're going to have to do outside of therapy is begin to pattern interrupt that, to not allow yourself to repeat those negative stories about yourself and to only do and believe that which moves you towards your goals. So if loving yourself is going to move you towards your goals, then we're going to do it, even if you don't think that you're worth it. If pushing to grow and get better is going to move you towards your goals, then we're going to do it, even if it doesn't feel like you deserve it. You have to let go of that in order to get to your goals. And now, as long as your goal is exciting and honorable, why would you ever want to do something that holds you back? If you're doing something that elevates yourself and other people, why would you want to stop yourself from doing that, even if you deserve to be punished or whatever it is that you think about yourself because of what happened in the past? It doesn't make sense. Free yourself from that. Allow yourself to contribute to yourself and others. Contribute as big and aggressively as you want, as you possibly can. And by continuing to believe that you're not worth it, you won't be able to do that. You won't be able to turn your potential into skill set. You won't be able to get into that passion loop where you're able to learn something and gain mastery and add value to other people's lives and get that positive feedback from them. You're so busy living in the past that you forget that there's an entire future waiting for you. But you have to let go of the past before you can move forward. Now, I don't want any of that to sound trite. Again, I understand how difficult this is, and I highly encourage you to get professional help. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, it's amazing, it's beautiful that you would think enough of yourself to go and put the time and the energy into getting better, and you can get better, but you're gonna have to put in the work. All right. When you were making your transition into being successful, how did you combat the frustration of not being where you wanted to be? I'm never where I want to be. So I'm not where I want to be now. I'm not where I wanted to be when, um, you know, people would have looked at it and said, oh my God, this is like the height of success. It was one, I'm very careful to make sure that I'm only invested in the process, but because I'm trying to get somewhere that intentionally I'm throwing way beyond where I'm at, I'm always thinking about what it's going to take to get to that next level. I'm never where I quote unquote want to be. 
but I don't trick myself into tying my value to achieving it. So I'm having fun. I'm enjoying the ride. I'm in it for the process. I'm in it for the learning. And I make sure that I'm handcrafting my life to optimize for joy and fulfillment. And so knowing that, I cannot guarantee the success. I cannot guarantee ever that anyone is ever going to be successful. But I can guarantee that you're going to struggle. Guarantee. 100%. Nobody avoids it. That's it. Everybody that ever tries to do anything, and even most of the people that don't try to do anything, are going to struggle profoundly with moving forward. It's just hard like that. And so if you know that the struggle is guaranteed, then you can't allow yourself to waste time to be tormented by the fact that you're not where you want to be. Make sure you're having fun in the struggle. Figuring out how to struggle well, that's the answer. When I was coming up, the question I was told to ask myself was, if you knew you couldn't fail, what would you do? And what I realized is since failure is the most obvious answer, that's probably not the right question to ask. The right question to ask is, what would I do and love every day, even if I were failing? Now, failure is never going to be as fun as winning. I know that. But if you can do something that you believe in enough and that the act of trying to get good at it is fun in and of itself, now you're on the right path. That's where you want to focus. Put your time and energy into making sure that you love the process. Don't worry about the outcome. You worry about the process, getting better and loving that, everything else will take care of itself. I am really freaked out to my core, like how much of who we are as an adult is an echo of things that happened to us when we were a kid. And look, I get it like neurologically, and I'd love to hear you take on this. I, I have a feeling you're a lot more educated on it than I am. But like the, the, the way that our neurology works such that we are, we are so much of a sponge in the early days, and it's a great strategy, right? From a species standpoint, you've got a horse sort of comes pre-wired with everything. A human gets a drink in culture to be shaped by its environment. But when that environment is dysfunctional, then you get this dysfunctional adult. I've heard very credible psychologists say, there are certain things if you don't get locked in by the age of four, like good luck unwinding that. And that, that really scares me. And I'd love to know like what that process is of beginning to change that story. So this is where sort of the central questions of our lives overlap. Mine is how do you stop someone's zip code from being the biggest determinant of their future success? which has so much to do with how they were raised. Yeah, and, and this is key. You know, as you mentioned, the, the stories that we tell ourselves, these stories are actually functional at a very core level. So, you know... What do, what the, do you mean by functional? Well, what I mean is that, you know, sometimes people talk about only think positive thoughts or only have positive emotions, okay? And, and actually, we have around 16,000 spoken thoughts every single day. We have many, many emotional experiences, and we have many stories. And there is nothing inherently good or bad about any thought. You know, there's nothing inherently good or bad about any emotion. These, this is basically your body doing its job, which is that your emotions evolved to help you to ward off danger, to judge, to criticize, to understand, to pick apart. So when you have these difficult thoughts, emotions, and stories, that's often your body, your psychology doing its job, which is basically trying to help you to be 
uh, a coherent being in the world. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by this. You know, when I wake up in the morning and I hear my baby cry, my story, which is that is my child that is crying, that needs me, is what helps me to tune in that sound relative to the washing machine that's going on in the background. So as human beings, what we do is we take in all these stimuli, we take in all this stuff that's going on in the environment, and we make sense of it. And making sense of these stories, even if they make sense in a way that doesn't serve us, is sense-making. So we all do this. What starts to happen is that we could have grown up with a story that might be, I'm unlovable. I was always told I'm not good enough and I'm unlovable. But then, you know, you reach 30 or 35 or whatever it is, and you start recognizing that that story is stopping you from being intimate, is stopping you from actually moving in the direction of your values, which is that you want to feel close and collaborative and connected. And so it's it's not that there's anything inherently good or bad about any story, any thought or any emotion that we have. The more important question to ask ourselves is, is the story that I have right now serving me? Can you is define bringing, serving me? That That's, I think, something that will help people. Yeah, yeah. Is it bringing me closer to being the person, the leader, the loved one that I most want to be? So, for instance, if I have a story that says um, I'm unlovable, the example that I gave earlier, and that's actually now stopping you from connecting with others, and it might even be impacting on your leadership because you are unable to give effective feedback in a way that feels connected, or you are really struggling with your team, but you are unable to disclose, gee, we, we're having a tough time together, and you feel very distant, that can get in the way. And so what's more helpful is to recognize that our thoughts, our emotions, and our stories aren't good or bad. They just are. But sometimes what we do is we hook into them and we start letting them drive us. And so what happens is it starts driving, the you know, that's the bus and the bus is being driven by the story as opposed to recognizing that we are more than our story. There's so much more that we can bring to our lives and to any difficulty that we're facing. But when we get stuck or in emotional agility terms, the language that I use is hooked. When we get hooked by a thought, an emotion, a story, what it does is it often moves us away from our values. And so emotional agility is the opposite. It's the process by which we become healthy with ourselves and healthy with these things inside of us so that we can bring other parts of ourselves to the surface. So when I think about um, the things that you're talking about and the process of rebuilding, if you've had a negative story, it's not serving you anymore. Um, and you talk so profoundly about values, I think, okay, well, one, I don't know that a lot of people define who they want to be, like what type of leader they want to be. Yeah. Um, I don't know that people know what their values are. Um, yeah. How can people, so if, if the rebuilding process is partly um, recognizing, okay, your emotions can serve you, they're a signal, right? I've always said that um, if, if the subconscious can process data faster and faster, as they say, um, mm -hmm. then the odds are that 
emotions are essentially the subconscious communicating in a way that's far more, um, it's faster, it's far more visceral than if it were just trying to kick up words into my conscious mind. And yeah. so my job is to identify, okay, what is that emotion? Why do I feel that emotion? And then translate it to things I know about myself. So how do you advise people, if, if you think what I'm saying makes sense, how do you advise people to um, solidify that identity of who they want to be, identify what their values are so they can know, ah, this feeling is out of alignment with that. Like, what yeah. does that process look like? So, okay, so the first thing is recognize that we live in a culture that tells us that some emotions are bad. And what this can often mean is that we then are in an internal struggle with our difficult emotions. Because I feel so, sad and I shouldn't feel sad. You know, often what I talk about in my work is that we have these type one emotions. A type one emotion is I'm frustrated, I'm angry, I'm anxious, I'm fearful, I'm grieving. Okay, that's a type one emotion. A type two emotion is the emotion that you have about the emotion. Oh, I'm anxious, but I shouldn't be anxious. Or, you know, I should be grateful about this that's going on, even though I'm not enjoying it because many people would want to be in my position. And so what we start doing is we start having this internal struggle with ourselves. So how do we start cleaning that out? How do we start really centering on what are my emotions telling me and how can they serve me? The first thing that I would say is that when you feel something, I, I often talk about this idea that, you know, in my work, I ha often have people saying to me things like, you know, I just wish the stress would go away, or I don't want to feel angry, I don't want to feel disappointed. And I say to them, you know, I get it. But, you know, these kind of goals are dead people's goals. Only dead people never get stressed, never feel the disappointment that comes with failure, um, never have their hearts broken. You know, discomfort is the price of admission to a meaningful life. You don't get to raise a family, leave the world a better place, or have a meaningful career without stress and discomfort. So the first thing that I would say is when you feel a difficult emotion, gentle acceptance, gentle acceptance. What do I mean by that? I don't mean passive resignation. I don't mean like, oh, you know, I feel bad. This is helpless. There's no point in me even trying. What is gentle acceptance? Gentle acceptance is the equivalent of you go outside and it's raining and you say, gee, it's raining. Okay. It's, gee, it's raining. Not gentle acceptance is, gee, it's raining. And why does it always rain when I want to go outside and I wish this rain were, okay. So the first part of being with our emotions is actually gentle acceptance. And this is not something we often talk about in, a business-related context, because really what I'm talking about is self-compassion. Self-compassion. Self-compassion is often thought of as being weak or lazy, you deluding yourself, you lying to yourself. But it's not. It's the self-soothing that you were talking about earlier. It's that ability to feel something, and instead of punishing yourself for that feeling, instead being able to say, this is what I'm feeling, like this is tough. You know, I've had this experience and it's tough. And when you do that, you create a space for yourself in which you are connected and you kind of love yourself. 
And it's in that space that you're then able to take more risks and try out new things because you know that if something goes wrong, you'll be there for you. So that's the first thing. The second thing that I would say is once you've done gentle acceptance, understand that your emotions contain signposts to your values. We don't feel things about stuff that we don't care about. So slow down into what is this emotion that I'm feeling and what is the emotion telling me about my values? Because we can find out about our values in many different ways, but one of the first ways we find out about our values is to recognize that our emotions are often telling us what our values are if we just breathe into it and start saying, what is it that this difficult emotion might be telling me? It might be, I need more support right now. It might be that I'm exhausted and I need more self-care. But these are really important parts of starting to connect with our values. When you had your clinical practice, did you find that people, um, there was a, a question you could ask them that would help them figure out how to translate that? Because um, I've met a lot of people who they can identify, I feel bored, but they have a hard time going and this translates into, I have a value around this. Like, are there simple questions and things that people can ask them or do you have them journal? Yeah. Well, so most of the work that I actually do is with leaders in organizational contexts. And um, there are a couple of questions. The first is, what is the emotion and what is the emotion telling you you might care about? And I want to come back to that because often the emotion we say we feel isn't the emotion we're really feeling. And how do people get to that ultimate truth thing? We can start saying, what is it that I did today that was worthwhile? Okay. Not what did I enjoy because you can go to a party and you can get drunk and you can enjoy it. It's not the same as worthwhile. What did I do today that was worthwhile? Often when we answer the question, you start connecting with it was learning or it was connection or it was I had that really difficult conversation with that person, but I felt that there was a sense of both of us being together at the end of it. And so asking ourselves over a couple of days, you know, what is this emotion that I'm feeling? What is it signaling? What did I do today that was worthwhile? Um, what if I was to choose a day that I was designing for myself, what would be some of the things that I would do? And it might be things that are around creativity, you know, the stuff that we close ourselves off from, but that starts signaling our values. I've also got a, a quiz that a lot of people use that have got a whole lot of values kind of mapped out in it that I can share with you. But there are different ways of starting to explore what our values are. And um, this is really important because the world around us is constantly telling us what our values should be. It might be to drive a particular car or to have a particular kind of career. And so being able to connect with the heartbeat of our own why, who we want to be, our internal compass is really important, not just because it feels good, but it also protects us from this kind of social contagion where we know we can start almost living someone else's life. And then you turn around 20 years later and you're like, oh my God, like I've built this thing, but I don't want it. Mm. So values help to protect us from social contagion, but we also know that they are incredibly important for our mental health and well-being. And knowing 
who you are and what you stand for is also protective of um, burnout. And All so right, we, we got to talk about that quiz then, okay. because you, you've pointed out something that is a terrifying statistic, which is that depression now causes more absence or, um, oh, God, I forget the exact phrase, but more than cancer, time away from work. Oh, God, what, what was the yeah. exact stat? Uh, so, you know, the World Health Organization uh, really points to this uh, statistic, which is now widely accepted, which is that depression is now the leading cause of disability globally. That's crazy. Outstripping cancer, outstripping heart disease. And so, you know, really we are coming into an age. It's an age where there is incredible complexity, where, where technology has really outstripped our capacity psychologically to thrive. And so more and more these skills of being able to be with oneself in ways that are healthy, in ways that are emotionally agile, these are fundamental skills for ourselves, our families, our children. You know, because what happens is, if you think about in organizations, all organizations say, oh, we've got to be agile, we've got to be creative, we've got to be innovative. But in reality, when people are faced with huge amounts of information and complexity, they tend to do the opposite. They shut down, there's black and white thinking, there's huge amounts of rigidity. And emotional agility is the skill that is critical because you don't get agility and flexibility and innovation without opening yourself up to difficult emotions that might come with innovation. You know, the flip side of that is the innovation doesn't work or success, the flip side of that is failure. So, you know, there is a fragility that is interwoven in life. We are healthy until we are not. We are successful in our work until we are not. And so these skills that I'm talking about are the skills that help us to deal with the world as it is, not as we wish it to be in some Pollyanna reality, you know, or in Pollyanna fiction of just be positive and this singular dimension of success. It's about being able to be healthy with ourselves. What are some specifics from the quiz? Cause I, I want, like, I'm so intrigued by how you help people map their value system. Um, I'd love to know, and I'm sure we can link to it as well so people can really get into it, but at like just a, a quick sort of nutshell version, what is a quiz walking people through? Sure. So what the quiz basically does is it takes people through questions around whether they push their emotions aside, whether they're agile with their emotions, what some of their core values are, and some of the skills that can be developed. So let me give you a practical example of how we can be with our emotions more effectively and how they can start signaling our values. Uh, imagine you come home from work and someone says to you, how was your day? And what do we often do? We often use these very big labels to describe how we're feeling. So I'm stressed is the most common one I hear. Um, I'm stressed. You know, every day it's like uh, just a bit stressful. But there's a world of difference between stress and disappointment or stress and that like knowing feeling of I'm in the wrong job or the wrong career. So what I found in my work is that when we do something that's actually fairly simple, which is to move beyond this big label of I'm stressed and instead we go into one or two other emotions that we might be feeling. Um, this psychologically is called emotion granularity. 
it's becoming more granular with our difficult emotions. It's an incredible experience to do this. So you go from I'm stressed into I'm disappointed or I'm exhausted. And what we know psychologically is when we label our emotions in a more granular way, it immediately helps us to identify what the cause of the emotion is and helps us to start taking active steps. So I'm stressed. I'm feeling like I need more support here. You know, I feel unsupported might be really what's going on. And that starts to put you in the place of how can I get more support or, you know, moving away from I'm stressed into actually I think I'm in the wrong job or what it starts to do is it starts to uh, develop out what is called the readiness potential in our, in our brains. It's this part of our brains that starts moving us from the space of being in our heads into being in action in our bodies. And so you start getting your resume together, you start getting your CV together. We know that this emotion granularity is critical to our well-being. In fact, children aged two, three, four years old who are more able to accurately label their emotions, their longitudinal studies showing that over time those children land up doing better. Because you can imagine a 16-year-old who can't label his or her emotions and someone says, oh, I've got a great idea. Let's go let the air out of the school principal's tires. Okay. And that kid wants to be part of the group. So a child who is more able to accurately label their emotions is a child who says, I want to be part of the group, but I have a sense of disquiet about what's going on here. You know, maybe this isn't the right action. So we know that just the simple way of being, which is to move beyond big emotions and to be more granular with them is extraordinarily powerful. In fact, I had a client who I was working with in an organization who always used to say, um, everyone's angry. You know, he was angry, his wife was angry, his team was angry with him. And we started working on this, you know, what are two other options? What are two other things that the team might be feeling? that are not about anger, it's about something else. And he started to say, maybe it's that they don't trust me yet. Or maybe what's going on is that they feel a bit overwhelmed here. And you can see that when you go into a meeting with, oh, the team's angry versus they need more trust, it's a completely different conversation. It's a completely different way of being. And months later, this guy's wife said to me that it completely changed their relationship because he would say, oh, oh, it looks like you're angry with me. And she was like, I'm not angry. I'm just tired. <laughs> or, you know, I'm not angry. I, I just want to be seen more. And so labeling emotions can completely shift things. There are other practical strategies I can give as well, but... Tell me if you well, felt that. that I, I, I would love to go into more, but first I want to talk about that idea of the emotional granularity. I think that's hugely important. And once yeah. you have the language for something, all of a sudden you do start to begin to differentiate between things. And I'll say one of the biggest breakthroughs in my own marriage is very similar to what you were just talking yeah. about, which was the ability to articulate in the moment what I'm feeling 
and maybe even more importantly, why I'm feeling it. And so my wife and I say, don't argue about the T, right? We were always at the surface level about what the argument was. And once we realize, okay, wait a second, like when you can get into that granularity of this is actually unease, it's not anger, or this is, you're triggering my insecurity. And now let me feel, why am I feeling insecure about this? It's, it's surprising even to me. And, you know, then you begin to sort of dig under that and find it. But if you don't have the words for it, if you don't know what sort of that array of options is to be able to choose the one that fits just right, you stay in that, you know, to every problem, to a hammer, every problem is a nail scenario. Yes. Yes. And this is where even starting to connect with um, what it feels like in our body, because Again, we so often live our lives, you know, here in our heads. And when we live our lives in our heads, you know, really our wisdom and our compassion and our courage and our being, our authenticity, like all of the things that make us thriving human beings are often not the things in our heads. You know, our minds will walk us off a cliff. Our minds will, um, you know, our minds will persuade us that we are right and another person is wrong, even if it means destroying a relationship, you know, even if it means not speaking to a person because I'm right and they're wrong and I can't remember exactly what this person did. All I know is I haven't spoken to them since. Our minds will walk us off a cliff. And really as human beings, being effective is often about moving away from our heads into our hearts. Okay, I'm gonna, I've heard you say that before. I'm gonna pin you down on that one. So what yep. is it? what does that mean? Like to be in my head, I understand. To be in my heart. What it means is being in our ability to breathe, to be centered in ourselves. And are you talking about the Viktor Frankl space that I've heard you mention before? Yeah, when you say to I breathe? Mean, is it, yeah, it is that. I mean, you know, what is Viktor Frankl who survived the Nazi death camps describes this idea between stimulus and response, there is a space. And in that space is our power to choose. And it's in that choice that lies our growth and our freedom. When we are hooked, when we are emotionally inagile, there's no space between stimulus and response. You know, he started in on the finances, I left the room. Um, I'm being undermined, I'm going to shut down. Okay, so there's no space between stimulus and response. What are we doing to create the space? What we need to be doing is firstly, do away with this idea that some emotions are allowed, some are not allowed. I feel what I feel, gentle acceptance. Secondly, recognize that our emotions are data, but they are not directives, okay? So we wanna be able to observe our emotions, not get stuck in them, but also not push them aside. We wanna be be able to observe them wisely. Another way that we can start just generating that data not directives space between stimulus and response is to simply notice our thoughts, our feelings, and our stories for what they are. They are thoughts, they're feelings, they're stories. What do I mean by this? If we can, instead of saying, I am sad, we start to say, I'm noticing that I'm feeling sad. I'm noticing this is my, there's no point thought. I'm noticing that this is my, I'm not good enough story. What you're starting to do is you're starting to notice your thoughts, your emotions, and your stories for what they are. They're thoughts, they're emotions, they're stories. They're not facts. They're not scripts that you have to live into. 
And so when people begin to notice that, when they recognize their story, do you teach them to rewrite that story? Well, what we often wanting to do is we wanting to say, this is my story. And who do I want to be right now? So, you know, for example, this idea of getting hooked on the story of I am right. We've all had that experience. Okay, human beings love being right. So I'm right and they're wrong. And we've, we all know this. You know, we all know that when you've been in a relationship for any period of time, you can have a fight with someone and finally the water's calm and you get into bed and you turn out the light and then something compels you one last time to turn on the light again and tell the person why you are right and they are wrong and all hell breaks loose again. You know, wars are made and countries are devastated by people being hooked on the idea of being right. And so think about this, you know, the more important question for all of us is, I may be right, but is this story serving me? You know, I may be right, but is this serving who I want to be in my relationship? Why do you think it's important to move towards things that scare you? Because on the other side of that is your growth. On the other side of that is strength. Even in going through pain, like I look at pain as a positive thing. I'm not talking about putting yourself through pain on purpose, but it's just like working out. You know, the only way you're going to get strength in your life is if you go through that hard moment, that tough moment. I wouldn't have a story if it wasn't for the sucky times in my life. I wouldn't have a story if it wasn't for me going through my depressed moments. So realize this, just because it's a chapter, it doesn't mean it's your whole story. So for me, I just understand that it's very important to embrace pain, to go through it, because I believe the foundation of all strength is pain. All right, so speaking of chapters, I think that one of the most interesting thing that anybody can put themselves through is becoming a professional athlete. Yeah. Um, and I get that it's sort of wrapped up, but you talk a lot in the book about a champion's mindset. Yeah. How did you get to the point where you could push yourself as hard as you did to get into the NFL? I mean, that's, that's really extraordinary. And you have a stat. What's the stat about the number of people that actually get into the NFL? It's less than 1%. It's like 0. .000 point. It's crazy. Yeah, it's and I told my son the other day, he's like, I'm going to make it to the NFL. I was like, you better be working harder than 99% of the people in the world. You know, it's very, very hard. And for me, it was all I ever wanted and knew. It was like no other option for me. So. That's the powerful thing about tunnel vision is that when you really focus on something, you really want it, it's very possible. But the thing is, a lot of people aren't willing to go through the hard times, put in the work when nobody's looking. I think I tell my son all the time, I'm like, okay, you went to track practice, but guess what? This is something that everybody does. What are you going to do that your teammates aren't doing? Because you don't have to just be the best on your team. You got to be the best in your city, the best in your state, one of the best in the world to be able to make it. So it's a whole different level of commitment. And that's where that championship mindset, it came to me from. I want to talk about that. So yeah. I don't know how much you know about Will Smith, uh, but watching him from afar has been really, really intriguing. And he talked about on uh, when they were doing the Karate Kid with his son. Yeah. And his son got hurt, like he injured his knee and Will was like fucking on him. He's like, you got to get back out there. Like you got to push. And Jaden's response, and he was way young, so give him, yeah. like cut him some slack, but he was like, I want mom. Yeah. And like goes over with his mom and people are like, Will, why are you pushing him so hard? And he said, I'm teaching my son how to hunt. 
Yeah. And I thought, that gives me the chills now. Like, I thought that shit was really powerful. How do you think about that with your son? Do you, do you worry about pushing too hard? Do you worry about not pushing enough? Like, what does that relationship look like? So, with Tristan, I push him, but I want him to want it. I don't want him to want it because daddy wants it for him. Because to me, that's great, but if I gotta push you to do something, I'm there to support you, but if I gotta push you to do it, it means you really don't wanna do it. So this whole process, I mean, he's 10 years old and people thought like, you know, you see kids playing at five and six and their dad is like, you know, going super hard on their kids and I get it. But at the end of the day, I want him to want sports. I want him to want football. Like if you wanna be a doctor, that's fine with me, but you gotta understand the same mindset to be successful, you can take that in any field. So you're gonna play sports for the simple fact that I know this can build you up for whatever you wanna do. It teaches you perseverance, it teaches you how to handle pressure moments, it teaches you how to work hard, the ethics of like sports is great. But at the end of the day, I'm like, Tristan, I can want you to be a superstar, but when you really want it, like when it's like when you wanna, when you wake up at 6 a.m. without me waking you up, when you say, hey, I wanna go work on routes without me telling you, that's when you'll be a beast and that's when you'll be super successful at it. When did you start wanting success in football that badly? When I was six. Wow, man. What Straight drove up. that? Probably wanted to be better than my two older brothers. But what really helped me was blessed enough I was able to live across the street from a professional football player. And it made it very tangible for me. Seeing, like, because, you know, you're growing up, you see these sport, your heroes as like, you know, you think they're not human. And so I was able to humanize like the dream at that moment in my life. I'm like, oh, this dude is just working hard. He's running around the block just like other people. And I got around that my uncle, he still coaches for the Chargers, but he was coaching even back then when I was a little kid. So I was blessed enough to be around it. I got to see Jerry Rice. I got to see T.O. And so it made it real for me. So I'm like, if they can do it, they breathe just like I breathe. You know, they just work hard and they just want it. And so at that moment, I realized that it's super possible but I knew I had to put in the work to actually make it a reality for me. Dude, I love that. I wish I had encountered that when I was young. The bad news is, I don't know that it would have resonated with me when I was a kid. Yeah. I was not prepared to push myself physically to get good at something. When I was young, it was always about the easiest path for me. And I think about this a lot with people in my community, and I know you'll get this because you have such a thriving community. Yeah. But the one thing I come back to all the time is, I can't want it for you. That's right. And so the thing that haunts my dreams is how do you help people create desire? And should you? What do you think about that? Like, so there's the whole Buddhist phrase that all of suffering is born of desire, which I actually think is true. And yet, I think some of the greatest joys are born of desire. And so my thing is I've gone all the fuck way in on desire, yeah. like building desire to want something, to need it, even though objectively it, like, there's really nothing to it. How do you think about want and desire? Well, the leverage that I use with my supporters is, I mean, at the end of the day, people say, oh, Trent, you changed my life. And I'm totally against that. Like, I'm like, I didn't change your life. I'm not a life changer. I just plant seeds. Like, you had to make the decision to actually apply and actually do it. But I use the leverage question of, when you get to your last day on earth, when you're sick, are you going to look back and realize that you wasted your whole entire life settling for less, not being who you're created to be? And even with myself, like, I don't want to look back on life like that. I don't want to go to my grave with incompletion. So I talk to them like that. Some of you are going to go to your grave site with incompletion. I don't know who said this quote, but they said, uh, you know, the richest place in the world is in the graveyard. 
And it's true because there's so many dreams, talents, and visions in there that people, for whatever reason, fear, you know, just life, they never unwrap those gifts. And when I talk to them about that, I used to actually, this might seem weird, but I used to actually go to the cemetery. Really? Yep. And I would bring one of my friends with me and um, I would say, bro, we walked around there. It's like, this is reality. Like, we're going to be here. And we walked around and we looked at the tombstones. And like, death has no, you know, has no age. There were people that were three, people that were 80. And it's like, I'm going to be here one day. And when I'm here, I want to have a fulfilled life. I don't want people to talk about me at a funeral and makeup stuff. I want it to be like, Trent really served this world. And he really used this life, not just for himself, but to impact other people. And so I'm just, I know I go back to leverage, but I'm big on that. And that like flips the switch for me, like time is ticking. And so you either can waste your day or you can do something with it. One of the chapters in your book, if I'm not mistaken, it was the last chapter, is about legacy. Yeah. How do you think about legacy? I like personally, I don't think a lot about legacy. I think a lot about phases of our lives. So I, yeah. I fully resonate with yeah. what you're saying about walking around the graveyard, yeah. which I would fucking love to do yeah. with you someday. That would be sure. surreal. Um, but how do you conceptualize that? Do you have markers in your head about what you're striving towards? Like how deep do you go in sort of the like, we're all headed to the grave? Yeah, I don't, I don't get to the particular parts of it, like, you know, like how my funeral's gonna be set up, that creeps me out. <laughs> so I don't get that end up. But I do think about like the question that I ask myself, and it's come up a lot more to me, you know, and I, I haven't figured out why. But I ask myself, you know, like what really matters? And there's a quote by Bob Goff, and I'm probably not gonna get this right. But he said, basically, like, his biggest fear was like being successful at the wrong things. And the quote is like way more beautiful than that, but I'm paraphrasing. It's like, I used to have a fear of not succeeding, but my fear now is succeeding at the wrong things. Mm. And I think about that a lot. Like what's really gonna matter at the end of my life? And I literally prioritize my life around that. I heard you say something once you wanna talk about, I'm gonna butcher one of your just insanely yeah. eloquent and beautiful quotes, but you said, uh, you're not a success unless you're a success to your family. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting. Something because I don't have kids, I don't spend a lot of time thinking yeah. about, but I do think a lot about what my wife thinks of me. Like that's a, a yeah. far more powerful motivator to me. And then you talked about how, basically how do you feel about yourself? And if you don't feel good about yourself, then you've got some fundamental flaw that you need to address. How do you help people begin to take stock of where they're at with themselves? Reality. So I have a rehab process and the first, R is reality. It's facing reality. Too many people run from it. You know, my quote is, you'll never win your war by running from your battles. And so you got to step up and you got to face it. I don't care what it is. It might be something in your past. It might suck to face it. For me, it was facing that my dream was over, my identity. So for somebody watching this, it might be a relationship. It might be a job. But I kept running. And the thing about it, like, you can run all you want, but reality is going to be right there when you stop and it's going to chase you. Or even if it doesn't chase you, it's going to be right there. You have to face it. So I really let people know that acknowledgement is power. People think if I acknowledge that I'm hurt or I need help, I need help is the most powerful thing that you can say. And I realized that in my life because immediately you have people that are going to help you and grow your life. Exposing yourself, like in a positive way, obviously, but expose yourself. We think that we always have to be so sheltered, that we have to be so strong, especially with the social media world. It's like, oh, I have to have everything together. That's like a silent depression that's gonna happen. When you suppress things like that, when you 
smile for the camera, but die behind the scenes, which I did so well for so long in my life, you're never going to fool the person that you see in the mirror every single day. So I've gotten really comfortable with saying, I suck at this. I need help. And literally, in my business life, in my personal life, in the last year, it's been the greatest year of my life, just by asking for help and exposing my weaknesses in certain areas. Yeah, it's interesting. Your obsession with authenticity, with being really who you are at all times, yeah. I think is, is really cool to see you um, get the kind of community that you've gotten around that, being vulnerable and opening yourself up. Um, but what I find really interesting is you're also the flip side of the coin. So as you were talking, I was like, he's absolutely right. But the reason that I'm willing to listen to you about it is because you're also driven. You're trying to improve yourself. You are trying to be great. You are trying to be strong and yeah. tough. You're just not afraid. I'm not afraid. To, yeah. Like, how do you do both? I just, I'm, I'm real with myself. And I'm honest. Like, we're humans. You're gonna, I mean, everybody isn't on all the time. You know, we all have our struggles, our silent battles, as I like to call them. And instead of ignoring those silent battles, I let them out. But yes, I am a person that's will tell you, make the world respect your greatness. I'm very firm on that. I'm a person that believes in myself. I'm a person that wants you because I believe that's contagious. Like even with social media, I feel like that's what really grew my platform is people looked at my life, not because of my knowledge or whatever. It's like Trent really believes this. Like he really does. He really lives it. He really, he doesn't just talk it or type it. He lives it and that's a big thing for me. You know, I can tell people a secret, right? Be transparent, like in a real way because that creates connection. Now it's like, I can relate to that person. You know, growing up in the church, I'm gonna be real with you, Tom, like I would watch pastors and preachers and I would be like, I could never be them. Cause it was always perfection. I was like, I can never be them. So I just chose a different lifestyle. But now when I see people like say, you know what? I struggle with this. I struggle with addiction. It doesn't mean you're not awesome because you have addictions. Everybody has addictions. Everybody has ba battles. Some people just hide theirs better. So I relate more to that because now it becomes attainable. Now you become relatable to me and I can be like, wow, like I can still go through this. There's nothing wrong with me. I'm a human. I'm going to have my insecurities, my flaws, and I can actually grow from it. So I think we need more examples of the world of that. And that's what I just try to give people as much as I can. You have a yeah. great way of like packaging things up in these really memorable um, phrases. One that you said earlier that I want to get back to is you said a lot of people never unwrap their gift. Yeah. And that really hit me. Yeah. What does that look like? Like, how does one unwrap their gift? Yeah, it's it's a process. It's the process of, I think, facing fear. I mean, and I, we can talk about fear for it, like, because facing fear is, is super important. And we can talk about, like, my process with that, I think, in order to unwrap your gift. So I'm not going to go into my skydive story. That would take forever. <laughs> but I realized, like, what fear is, right? And for me... Fear is creating a known result, right, from a situation you haven't experienced yet. And so when I used to go back to football, when I would be scared to go out there and perform, I'd be like, you know what? I'm going to drop the ball. I'm going to miss a pass, and the whole crowd of 80,000 people is going to be like, ah. Oh. So I'm like, I'm scared now. Stage. When I'm on stage before I was speaking, what do you think I was thinking? I'm going to freeze up again. Nobody's going to care. All of these things, I realized that I was creating a result before I ever experienced it. And so I said, hmm, if that's the case, I need to create something better on the other side of that door, something more empowering that's going to force me to actually go through the door. So now when I speak, I say, you know what, I'm going to impact at least one life. So go out there and do it. You know, when it comes to my skydiving, of course, that thing was the parachute's not going to open. You're going to die. Of course, you're not going to jump out of the plane. But I immediately changed that to this is going to be the most incredible thing and also leverage where 
Now I can use this in every area of my life because I conquered my biggest fear. So people out there that are going through fearful moments, it's kind of like this. You will never step into the ring if you're already telling yourself that you're going to lose before the fight. You'll never do that. Like, why would you? Right? So tell yourself you're going to win. Even if you get knocked down, guess what? You're never knocked out in life until you actually tap out into your last day. So figure out that leverage point with your fear, what's going to help you walk through the door. And then you have to just give it to the world. I never knew speaking was my gift until I actually went out there and failed. I actually went out there and embarrassed myself. And I realized like, wow, this is what I was created to do. And I knew that because I like to put it like this. And I hope they get it that's watching this, but I've never had so much like peace in the midst of like fear. Mm. Never had so much confidence in the midst of like my weakness in that moment. And so when it comes to gifts, think about it like this. Like when someone gives you a physical gift, like Christmas and your birthday, what do you do? You unwrap it, you show it to the world, you put it on Instagram. You got that same gift inside you that the world needs. And you're doing the world a disservice by leaving your gift wrapped up. Somebody needs your story. My mom told me this and I'll never forget it. She said, Trent, you're assigned to reach people. I don't know how many, but you're assigned to reach people that nobody else can reach but you. She said, everybody has that. And the more you leave your gift wrapped, those people that need your message, that need your encouragement, whatever it is, that need your talent, they're never gonna get it. And you're not gonna leave this world a better place. I know people watching right now are thinking one question. What is my gift? Yeah. I want to unwrap it all day long. Yeah. How do people identify what their gift is enough to be able to unwrap it? This is a, this is a good question. This is deep. So can we talk about purpose for a minute Please? and go into this? So this is my way of purpose. And I've never heard nobody talk about this. And some people might be like, that's not right. But everybody tells you to find your purpose, right? And I'm just like, where? Like, who has your purpose? Like, the world? Doubt the world has your purpose. The world might have your validation of who you are. They might be like, oh, you're great at this. And so they give you that validation. I talk about this in the book. I believe, and I realized this like last year, and I actually wrote this chapter. I went back and I changed it all because I'm like, I'm telling people, telling people to search for purpose. I believe you are purpose. I believe you are purpose. You're created for a purpose. Like we know the statistics, like a 0% chance of you being you. You are that. So when you operate from there, it gives you that confidence that I am that, it's not something I've searched for. You can take your life wherever you want to take it. What you're looking for is placement, right? It's like, so for me, rehab time is not my purpose. It's my placement. Interesting. I can take Trent to down the street and go impact lives because I am purpose, right? Football, if I, my mom was right back then, I could use that platform to be who I am. So you can take your life anywhere. And I want people to know that because some people think when you lose a dream or you lose something, that it's over. But you didn't lose who you are. You lost that thing, that placement, right? You, so that's what I think about purpose. And I would tell people, like, understand what your magnet is. And when it comes to that, ask people. And so when I look back over my life, ever since I was five years old, people have been telling me I had this gift. But I was so focused on what I wanted to do that I couldn't even hear that. Yeah, that's really interesting to me, the notion of the difference between what you want and where you thrive. That's definitely using my words, not yours, but yeah. um, that whole dynamic is interesting. Another thing that you've said that I'm really drawn to is, um, I think you were talking at one point and you said, 
hey, if you've got like a garbage part of your personality, don't pretend that it's not there. Don't pretend it doesn't need to be improved. Like address that, make the change. Yeah. And that like, it's that realism of you've got like the, the painting the picture of the dream and the gift and you are purpose and all that, but also recognize that you yeah. may have these really dysfunctional parts of your personality. Um, how can people address a dysfunctional part of their personality? Yeah, I think you have to, you just have to face it and deal with it. Like, I think it's just too hard to suppress it. It's too hard to ignore it. And so you have to be honest with yourself and truthful with yourself. And I think a lot of times what it is, is for me, I was expecting things from people that I wasn't giving to people. And so that's very, very selfish, you know? So I had to look at myself and say, you know what, this part of my personality needs to be changed. It needs to be fixed. So it's that reality that you have to have with yourself and that that truthfulness and not knowing that it doesn't make you weak by admitting these things. It doesn't make you less by admitting these things. And I bring it back to social media because just this generation, it's the filter life, you know? Like even in real life, like everybody wants to put up this filter and they think that's their superpower. But your superpower is literally just being real. And that's where you grow at. Like you have to acknowledge that I need help in this area. I have faults, I have flaws right here. Let me fix these things. And that's going to make you more of a, a superhuman. You just mentioned suppression. You've talked yeah. about how suppression leads to depression. depression. Yeah. Talk to me about that. Why does that happen and why does it matter? It matters a lot. Um, you know, just to even, for me even to get to that point of understanding that, you know, my college, one of my best friends committed suicide. And that changed my life. Like when we talk about going to the graveyard, it was right around, right after that time when I started to think about life and what's going on. And... I realized that he was suppressing so many things. He didn't have an outlet. And I mean, if we take from a physical standpoint, I mean, if you keep suppressing something, what's going to happen? It's going to explode at one point. And so what you don't face are things that, you know, you don't fix. And so for me, it's about letting it out. You know, a lot of my videos, people don't realize like therapy is not a weakness, especially as for men. Like go to therapy, have somebody you can talk to, have a brotherhood, a manhood, have somebody you can... Same thing with women. You got to have your clique of people where you can have open dialogue without being judged to be able to let these emotions out. Because those, if you don't deal with your pain, your pain will definitely deal with you. It will. And I've been there before. I've been, like I said, the person that would say I'm okay when I'm not okay. When I would sit in my mom's room, my mom would say, Trina, are you good? Yeah, I'm good. When I wasn't good at all. And I got to those moments where I don't know if it was suicidal thoughts, but I didn't care about living. If something happened to me, might be better off because my life is over. That's the way I felt. And so I had to let those things out. And my way at that time was music. With your mindset, how are you dealing with your mom's cancer? Yeah, it's hard. It's very hard. My mom had cancer and what made it hard was she beat stage four liver and breast. And I'm with her at the at our last treatment. She rings the bell and she's like, Trent, I don't feel, and it's on my Instagram, like she's where she rings the bell and she says, Trent, I don't feel, something don't feel right. And I'm like, mom, like, you're all right. You just sing your mind. She goes to the doctor that next, maybe two days later, and they find out after tests that she has brain cancer. So at that moment, I'm like, it's not fair, you know? And I start questioning my faith. And I have to do like a deep search and a deep dive of, you know, understanding and, and finding a perspective. My perspective was my prison at that point. And what, what really helped my perspective, and I wish it wouldn't have helped, but it did. Um, my best friend's mother died. 
in her sleep. Didn't have anything. And so I told my mom, I was like, mom, as much as this sucks, you're still here. You having to go through treatments means you're still alive. That pain means you're still alive. And that's the perspective that I'm taking with it now. Like there's people who wish they could have this pain. There's people who wish they could, you know, be alive to even feel cancer. And uh, she's progressing with it though. And uh, it's hard, man. I tell people all the time, I don't know the exact words to even tell people how, to, how I'm dealing with it. You know, I'm just trying my best to be strong for her and try to see the beauty in it. Wow, that's interesting. I did not expect you to say that. How do you see the beauty in cancer in, in anything like that? Well, it's for me seeing that she still has an opportunity to overcome it. And I think, you know, it's that, it's that power perspective in that and saying, you know what? Her life might not be how she wants it to be, but at least she has life. And that's how I look at my life at times. And everybody should look at their life. Yeah, life might not be adding up to what you want it to add up to, but at least you have another, every single day is a new beginning. Every day is a new beginning. And certain days aren't gonna look like you want them to look, but at least you have another chance. Like a hundred, I tell this stat all the time, 150,000 people die every day. That's 55 million people a year. If you're looking for a blessing, put your hand over your heart, realize that's your blessing. You have another opportunity at life. And that's why I'm so intrigued, and this is like geeky probably, but I'm so intrigued with sunrises and sunsets. A sunrise lets me know that I have another day, and a sunset means I made it through another day. And so I'm, I love sunrises and sunsets, and I thank God for it. It's really interesting. You just hit me with that because today in particular, the, I had so much to do, self-created. I don't ever have to work again if I don't want to but I had so much that I had allowed to be on my plate that the sunrise was almost frustrating for me because it meant that time was going by mm -hmm. and I just wanted it to stay dark and I wanted to have more time to work and get something done. As you were saying that, I was like, fuck, man, that's a really powerful yeah. perspective shift to like one simple difference of framing of like, you know, wow, I'm here. I have the opportunity to have a lot on my plate and to dig through it that's uh, just and it was a point like that's funny you said a lot a lot on your plate i don't know what rappers i think it's lil wayne i think he says like a lot on my plate is not my favorite dish he said that and i think it's a genius line because i'm like that is like <laughs> that is true because there are times like because i went i go through these moments like i'm flying everywhere and i'm just like gosh i gotta fly here like my book is like this is crazy and i, and I, I caught myself i'm like bro like do you realize the life that you have right now? There will be times like you dreamed of this. You know, even, of course, I thought it would be football, but like you dreamed of this. You, you didn't have nothing on your plate. And you, were, you would pray to have anything on it. So don't get, you know, of course, I don't want to overwhelm myself with stuff, but don't complain when you have too much on your plate because there's people that have nothing on it. And so that, those are the perspective shifts that I use like a lot every single day. Every time I'm complaining, I go to that. Like, you're blessed to be able to be in this position. Like, you wanted this. This was your dream, you know? So. For sure. We are going to be talking all about overcoming negativity. This is something that I know a lot of people struggle with, and it really is going to be the kind of thing that holds you back. But I've got some really powerful tips, techniques, strategies that are going to help you guys get past that and build the life that you want for yourself. Now, I get asked about this a lot, so I've had a lot of questions come in, and the first one goes like this. How do you learn to love, forgive yourself when you've done something in the past you wouldn't forgive someone else for doing 
I want to do and be better, but seem to always come back because I don't think I deserve the things I want to achieve. Youch. Okay, so here we go. I have a very hard and fast rule that I use when it comes to this idea of self-punishment. Now, self-punishment can be very useful, but not when it gets to the point where it is diminishing your sense of self, like what I see here. When you can't even let yourself believe that you are worthy of improving, getting better, and accomplishing things, we're now officially in what I'll call a death spiral. So the rule that I put in my life is very simple, and it allowed me to let myself off the hook for things that I had done in the past. And it goes like this. Every human being should only ever do and believe that which moves them towards their goal. Now, their goals should be both exciting and honorable, meaning it should be exciting for you, but it should also not just serve you, but it should also serve other people. So no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, pursuing a goal that is honorable, that uplifts other people, why on earth would you not want yourself to do that? So if we can agree that everybody should be pursuing goals that are honorable and everybody should only allow themselves to do and believe the things that propel them down that path to actually achieving that goal, now it's not about you, it's just about common sense for human society, for us as the human animal to get the most out of this experience and to contribute the most, then we have to put ourselves in a frame of mind that propels us down that path. There were so many times in my life where I really believed that I was stupid or I believed that I was unworthy or I believed I needed to be punished for something that I had done. And I would get in these loops of like, oh man, I'm not good enough. I'm never going to achieve this. And why am I even bothering? And I realized that even though I would ultimately get past it and be like, look, just do it. I would waste so much time in this beating myself up cycle. So I created that rule that I was only going to do and believe that which moved me towards my goals. So now it's like, am I good enough to do this? Am I worthy enough to do this? Do I deserve to have something positive happen in my life? And the answer is, I'm going to believe that, yes, I am good enough to pull this off. Yes, I am worthy of doing something like this for two reasons. One, I'm only pursuing things that are honorable in the first place. And two, such is the nature of the human animal and the human experience that we should all be getting ourselves in a mental frame of reference that propels us forward. And so I just let myself off the hook that even if I deserve to be punished, it wasn't going to move me towards my goal. It wasn't going to help me contribute to myself, which by the way, nobody should feel bad about contributing to themselves, but it really wasn't going to help me contribute to other people. And as long as I felt good about the things that I was trying to do and create, it just made sense to let myself off the hook so that I could take the actions that I needed to take in order to help, in order to contribute, in order to thrive. So I use that rule all the time in my life, and I hope that you will get as much value out of it as I have. All right, the next question around overcoming negativity. 
Even though I have had lots of learnings from my previous relationships, certain toxic ones have given me experiences that override my logic and optimism and affect my current situation. How do I use the past as a source of knowledge and use it to my advantage in this case, rather than see my current relationship crumble because of my assumptions to all the negative things that can happen, lack of trust, etc. Okay, this all comes down to what is effective. So if thinking about all those negative things is effective, then we're going to do it. If letting those negative things go and looking at the more optimistic side of what could become what we could build works, then we're going to ignore it. We're going to move forward. Now, the reality is both of those things are true. You want to look at where things went wrong. You want to assess what the problem was that caused for that mistake to happen in the first place for the betrayal or whatever may have occurred. Now, the key is when you look at this and say, ah, there are bad people in the world, there are people that want to do me harm, then you've taken a neutral incident. This person, just to make it extreme, this person betrayed me. Okay, as Shakespeare says, there's nothing either good or bad, but thinking makes it so. You've made a value judgment on that. Now, one way you could say is, I, uh, people are bad, like as a default, people, it is so easy to go to the negative side, to cheat on somebody, to take what you can get, to take advantage of the situation that people are looking to lure me into a sense of um, trust. And then they're going to abuse that trust. And it's just the nature of people. Well, the reality is that does exist in human nature. Like we know that humans can be incredibly selfish, but whatever you look for, you're going to find. So I want to introduce you to this idea of it doesn't matter what you look at, it matters what you see. And I'll push that even farther and say, it doesn't matter what you look at, it matters what you choose to see. Because the other way to look at that, if somebody betrays you is to say, oh my God, that really sucked, that hurt. I do not want to put myself in that situation again, but I know how hurt people can be, how scared, how wounded, how people can get based on how they were raised and the people that they've been around, they can get these toxic patterns where they destroy the good things in their own life. Like we had an amazing relationship and they ended up getting themselves into a, a situation where they lacked integrity, where they couldn't be honest. And I know what it's like to be unable to say the hard things. I know what it's like to get swept up in, you know, uh, the electricity of the beginning of a relationship or to be too afraid to invest in something for the long term. And so with grace and compassion, though I'm not going to go back into that relationship, I actually understand how they could end up there. Another way to look at it, and this is the one that gets my vote, is to say, all right, this sucked. I get it. I get that humans do dumb things. I get that humans can be hurtful. I'm not interested though in what my partner did wrong. I'm only interested in what I can do next time to avoid the same mistakes without diminishing the beauty that is a relationship. Now, I have a fundamental belief that the single greatest joy that anybody can have in their life is to share a life with somebody that they love and who loves them, that they trust and who trusts them. So I'm not gonna give up on that belief because it went wrong one time, two times, three times, whatever. I'm looking at what I can control to make sure that I don't end up back in that situation. Now, all three of these ways of looking at it are 
reasonable, they're rational. There's a very strong argument to be made for any of those three, right? But only one of them empowers you to move forward, to take control of your own life, to make different choices next time, even if it's just to say, you know, there are issues in the way that I select. And do I need to go seek therapy to figure out what it is that draws me to people that are more likely to betray me or to abuse me or whatever the case may be? But these ultimately are identifiable problems and solvable problems. And given that they are identifiable and solvable problems, I want to stay in the driver's seat, which means I have to take responsibility for my actions. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm beating myself up and you know playing the blame game. It just means I'm retaining control, which is extraordinarily powerful. So I want to go back to that idea of it doesn't matter what you look at. It matters what you see. I'm going to choose to see what I could do differently in order to get a different result. And because I believe that one of the, the I mean, for me, the belief is the most beautiful thing that you can ever hope to get in life is to love and be loved to somebody that loves you back, that you trust and they trust you. And that takes a lot of work, but it's amazing and it's worth that effort. So I'm going to retain control. All right. That's how I would look at it. Not just that particular example, but that's how I look at basically everything in my life. All right. Next question. How do you know when something is actually negative or a warning? Sometimes when you embark on a journey, there are so many voices within. How do I then learn to separate negativity from fear? All right. This is amazing. This is a question about self-awareness. Now, all of the you know, self-improvement talk in the world is useless if you don't learn to become self-aware. Now, here's the great news. This is a process. Now, there are certainly some people that take to it a little bit more easily, and maybe you really struggle with self-awareness, but I'm going to walk you quickly through the process of how to gain some more self-awareness. So it goes like this. In your body, there's this thing called the vagus nerve. The vagus nerve is the biggest nerve in your body. The vagus nerve runs all over everywhere, touches every system, goes into your gut, down your limbs, everything. Now, most people think of the body as the brain telling your body what to do. And then a little bit of information from the body. If you hurt yourself or whatever, you're going to get a pain signal or a pleasure signal. But for the most part, it's a top-down system. Read Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, How Emotions Are Made. That book flips all of this on its head. And what it explains is that it's basically an extrapolation of the fact that the vagus nerve, 80% of the data that it sends is from the body to the brain, only 20% from the brain to the body. Think about that. And that emotions start in the body. So a big part of self-awareness is getting in your body, feeling your body, figuring out how a, an emotion manifests itself. Does it do you start to get flush? Do you feel jittery? Are you anxious? Are you angry? Beginning to identify the sensations in your body because the way emotions are made, you get a feeling in your body. Your body then maps that feeling on to what was happening the last time that you felt that. Oh, the last time you felt like that, you were angry. The last time you felt like that, you were scared. The last time you felt like that, you were in love, whatever. And your body tries to map or your brain tries to map that body sensation onto a familiar state. And then once it goes, ah, yeah, I know that this is fear, boom, all the responses that come with fear and you go. And so one of the ways that people talk about anxiety at a physiological level, anxiety looks very similar to excitement. 
And so one of the loops that a cognitive behavioral therapist, for instance, would tell you to do is to go, oh, I know this feeling. This is excitement. Not, oh, I know this feeling. I'm super anxious. Oh, I know this feeling. This is excitement. And you constantly work to reframe that feeling as excitement. Now, the super weird thing is it works. Your brain actually believes what you tell it. So your brain is quite literally coming up with a backwards compatible story to try to make sense of the feeling, but it also allows you to put a conscious reinterpretation on top of that feeling. So now you're able to go, oh, this isn't anxiety. This is excitement. I feel that what's coming is going to be fun. It's going to be exciting. And that's why my heart is beating faster. That's why my breath is getting more shallow because I'm super excited to go do this thing. Now, when you first start doing it, of course, it sounds like BS and you're calling yourself out on it. But if you repeat it and you go through that process enough, it really does begin to come true. The next part of the equation is just getting really good at identifying the signal that your body's sending you. So instead of mapping it to sort of, you know, four or five really basic primary emotions, fear, excitement, um, joy, sadness, whatever, like those really sort of primary colors of emotion, we get into a layer deeper and we start beginning to identify, oh, I get this is, I'm feeling flustered. Why am I feeling flustered? Oh, they, they, um, they're saying that I'm short and I'm insecure about my height. So, oh man, this isn't me that I dislike them. This is that they're tapping into my insecurity. And I will just tell you in a marriage, like realizing that 90% of the arguments you get into, you think they're about a cup of tea or about the kids or um, let's stick with the kids, money. That's another huge one. You think you're arguing about money, let's say. But really what's happening is you're afraid that you can't pay the bills or you're afraid that when they say that they're worried that you're not going to be able to pay the bills, that what they're saying is you don't make enough money and that they told you, you should have gone in to talk to your boss to ask for a raise, or you should be working harder. You should have quit that job a long time ago and gone somewhere else. And so now you get this flustered feeling because they're triggering an insecurity. But what usually happens is people just lash out and you start arguing about the paying the bill, but this isn't about paying the bill. This is about how you feel about your job and what you think they're judging you about not having a higher paying job. People get into those death loops all the time. The biggest argument my wife and I ever got into was over a cup of tea. Over a cup of tea. We got into this huge screaming match. It almost ended our vacation, what little vacation we had at that time. And I remember thinking, this is crazy. Like we are legitimately yelling at each other. We are about to turn the car around on the freeway and go home and not go to our vacation over a cup of tea. And so finally we just said, all right, hold on, hold on, hold on. What are we really fighting about? And that was the beginning of realizing my body sends me a signal. It's making me agitated. I blanket interpret this as, oh, I'm angry. Why am I angry? Oh, because they wasted time having this cup of tea. When in reality, it was this way deeper thing about respect. And I felt like she wasn't understanding how important it was to me 
to have taken time off to go on this vacation, to spend money. We were so poor to spend money on a hotel. So I wanted to be there the second they would let us into that room to feel like I was getting the most out of my money. And for her, she's like, oh my God, I'm finally heard and understood that we're going on vacation. He's giving me some of his time. And so I'm going to start my day out with a cup of tea and just bask in, you know, going slow and not, you know, being hard charging for a minute. But we weren't understanding each other. And so we had this huge blow up over the tea. So beginning to identify in real time, my body's telling me something. I don't want to shove it into this primary basket of emotion. I want to figure out what's really going on. That some egregious percentage of the time, it's somebody's triggered an insecurity about something. You're not feeling respected. You're not feeling loved. You're not feeling smart. They make you feel dumb, make you feel poor, whatever you have your insecurities around. And when you can actually talk about those insecurities, now things begin to unlock. But it begins with that process of, I feel something in my body. What is it? Put a name to it, make it as nuanced as possible, and then articulate it out loud. When you start doing that enough, all of a sudden, you're able to get to that very quickly, and that will change the game. Dear Tom, many people around me are struggling with negative, self-deprecating thoughts and self-narratives, and nothing I do or say for them seems to reach them. They are so used to being miserable and depressed all the time that they are unconsciously blocking away the good in life. So my question is, what should I do with people who refuse to let go of their negativity? They are close friends and family members, so I just can't cut ties with them, but being with them is really draining. Thank you in advance for your brilliant answer and wish you and your team all the best. All right. The super bummer news that I have for you is while I have the right answer, I don't know that it's the super genius answer that you want. One of the goals of my life is to get to the point where in 30 seconds or less, I can change the course of somebody's life through magic words, for lack of a better way to think of it. And I'm really trying and I won't give up. But as of right now, the only solution that I have when you love somebody that is stuck in negativity is what I call just sit. If I know I'm going to spend time with them and I can't break them out of their negative ways, then I'm just going to sit and be with them and I'm going to love them and I'm going to make sure that they know that I love them. And I'll live my life without judgment, without needing them to change, without um, trying to preach to them. I'm just going to be with them and find things that we can talk about that's fun. Um, there's almost always something that even the most negative person loves. And if you can find that thing, fishing, card collecting, Hawaii, whatever somebody's thing is, whatever it is that they like to talk about and you get them onto that subject, you'll actually have fun. It's really surprising. My, my dad's wife is way into quilting. Now, I can't tell you how not into quilting I am, but she's really passionate about it. And having a conversation with her about quilting is so interesting because she's so passionate. And whenever you can get somebody on to something that they're passionate about, whether they're a positive person or a negative person, it gets to be a pretty fun place. So I just sit, I try to find things that they're going to be excited to talk about. And my whole goal is to make them feel loved where they're at. Now I live my life the way I'm going to live it. I don't join them in negativity. I don't, you know, go in on those conversations, 
but I don't want them to feel judged. I don't want to put distance between us. Um, you know, there's nothing worse than making somebody that you love and care about feel judged, which of course I was by, even though I was just trying to help, I didn't want to see them suffer anymore in constantly trying, like saying, Hey, you're doing this wrong. Like there's a better way you'll be happier. It just made them feel judged. And it was putting tremendous distance between me and somebody that I cared about. So it works. It will work every time, but you have to let go and know that they're going to suffer until they're ready to change. You can't want it for them, much to my dismay. All right, next up. I previously used negativity as fuel to achieve my goals, i.e. doing things that others didn't believe I could do. Although this was a very effective tool, I ultimately felt dissatisfied when I reached these goals. I am trying now to use passion to fuel my goals, but find that it is a less effective driving force. Have I just not found something that I'm passionate enough about or is negativity truly a powerful tool? If so, is there a way of reframing the neg negativity such that I can use it without feeling dissatisfied at the end? Okay, so yes, yes. There is the dark side and there is the light side of the force. And the dark side has its place but you have to be very careful. You cannot use them in equilibrium. I have found in my own life that it's about 80-20. 80% of my time, I spend focused on the beautiful things that I wanna create, the amazing things, the, the mission that I'm on, how I wanna help other people, right? I talked about goals being exciting to you and honorable. So they uplift you and other people. And I try to spend as much time as I can there. And that's gotten me through a lot of difficult times to think about the people I'm trying to serve, to think about the way that I'm going to help people. We end every team meeting at Impact Theory with a connection to our communities, whether it's playing a video of somebody who's changed their life or reading a letter that somebody's written us about how um, the content that we create has moved them forward in some meaningful way. And they're beautiful and it's amazing and it feels so good. But there are times where I'm so fatigued. There's a great quote by Vince Lombardi, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And there are times where I'm so fatigued, all the beautiful things in the world are not enough to keep me going. And I'm just done, I'm spent, I'm in, I'm past the David Goggins 40%, where he says, when you think you're broken and couldn't possibly go another step, you're only 40% of the way there, okay? The beautiful things will get me past that hurdle. But when you're actually 80% of the way there, 90% of the way there, really close to being fully spent, the thing that I lean on in that moment is the dark side. The people that want me to fail. The people that are on my list, as I call it. There are people that have tried to trip me up, that want to see me lose, that come at me, go behind my back, whatever. And I put them on a list. And I never think about the list more than 20% of the time because that's a dark place to be. But when I'm really tired and I'm in danger of cowardice, I think about those people and it's an ugly energy, but damn. Is it powerful? 
to say, I'm not going to let them win. I will, as David Goggins says, take their souls. And it's really powerful. And it's one of those things that I often get pushed back on because it is ugly to say that I think about these people and I think about destroying them and beating them and outperforming them in every way and dunking in their face and doing better than them in life and watching them just get demolished by my performance. But it's motivating and it works. Now, if you spend too much time there, you slide into bitterness, you slide into anger, it's resentment, it's all about them. But man, let me tell you, if you get that balance right, 80-20, 90-10, man, it's, it's really profoundly powerful. There is a reason that evolution has given you anger. There's a reason that evolution has given you rage. There is a reason that evolution has given you righteous indignation. You know, you hear these apocryphal stories of a woman lifts a car off her baby. And I think the reason that we all believe it, whether it's true or not, is you know what that energy amplitude is like when you're just enraged with somebody and you refuse to back down and you're right and they're wrong. I used to, when I first started working out in the gym and I hated every second of it, I used to imagine somebody attacking my wife. And the rage that inspired in me allowed me to push myself in the gym. And I would say the problem isn't that it's a powerful energy. The pro it only becomes a problem when you spend too much time there. So the, the short answer to your question is use it, but never more than 20%. And if you also have that huge basket of resources to draw on of things that you love and people you want to help and, you know, all the great things that you can bring into the world, if you keep pushing, you will be fine. So don't be afraid to leverage it. Don't over leverage it. I love that question. All right. Six. Last one. I currently study at a prestigious school in my country. After I finally finished high school, my problem with negativity has to do with this school. Since the day I got enrolled, I'm full of negativity and self-doubt, which led me to squandering most of the scholar year. My brain somehow finds ways to trick me and keep me unmotivated and negative all the time. It's really depressing to be like this and stuck in a rut. If you could help me overcome this curse of negativity, I truly appreciate it. And thanks a million for your efforts. All right, homie, when I say I have the silver bullet for this one, this, this is the magic genius answer that people were looking for on the other one. Here it goes. You do not need to think that you are anything special. It is absolutely okay for you to be hopelessly average. Why? To me, the most powerful thing that you could believe about yourself is that you're the average human. Now, why? I actually think it is less powerful for you to think that you are above average. Because to think that you are above average means that you are valuing yourself for being better than people. It's a super vulnerable position to be in because you will inevitably meet people who are better than you. And what do you do with your ego then? Then it's really crushing. You thought you were the man. And now you encounter somebody that's better than you. They slap you around. They outperform you. They dunk on you, whatever. And now, whoa, like you've got to rebuild and claw your way back versus saying the following. The average human is the ultimate adaptation machine. 
as a species, humans have chosen to respond to cultural and environmental cues. So we do not come pre-programmed like a horse that comes out of the womb, 10 minutes later, it's ready to rock and roll. It's running around doing all the things that a horse can do. A human, on the other hand, has this huge period of development after birth where we cannot take care of ourselves. We can't walk, can't hold our own head up. We shit in our pants. It's crazy. But what that does is it allows us to drink in this, the environment that we're born into and adapt. So the average human is the ultimate adaptation machine. Therefore, being the average human means you're a learner. That's it. You're not exceptional. So you, you're not putting any of your psychology, your um, self-worth, your pride into being better than somebody else. It all comes down to valuing yourself for being the learner. So, hey, cool. You wasted a bunch of time at school. No reason to hide from that. It was a waste. We're not going to repeat the mistake, but we learn. So you've got the self-awareness to see that it was a mistake. Now it's just like, what do you want to do? What do you want to get great at? Because if you apply yourself, even if you're not good yet, you can get good. How do I know that? Because you're the average human. And the average human is the ultimate adaptation machine. This is all about disciplined, focused energy into acquiring a skill set. It's what I call the only belief that matters. When you believe the time and energy directed at something through deliberate practice will actually make you better at that thing. Now, all of a sudden, it's like, I can get good at anything if I apply myself. And now, all of a sudden, your behaviors align with your belief. That's why that belief matters so much. Because if you don't think you can get better at something, then why would you apply any time and energy to it? And if you don't apply time and energy to it, then you really won't get any better. So it becomes this loop of, well, I believe I can get better. Therefore, I try. Therefore, I actually get better. Therefore, I try harder. And you get in this virtuous cycle. This is hugely important. That is one of those things that will govern the rest of your life. You value yourself for learning, getting better at something, and applying yourself. Everything else will take care of itself because you just keep applying yourself. Don't make excuses. Don't BS yourself. If you waste the time, you waste the time. Don't spend your time beating yourself up over it because we only do and believe that which moves us towards our goals, right? We talked about that earlier. So we're going to do and believe that which moves us towards our goal. And in this case, that is the belief that we can get good at anything. Now, there's an incredible quote. I love this quote so much. You can't make a racehorse out of a pig but you can make a really fast pig. Your life can be the answer to what does a fast pig look like? That is certainly what my life is. All the success that I've had in my life is not because I was gifted at any one thing. When I left for college, my mother quietly assumed I was going to fail. My best friend assumed I was going to marshmallow my way through life. When I asked my father-in-law for his blessing to marry his daughter, he said, no. And yet, I went on to be successful, to earn my father-in-law's respect, um, not because they misidentified me, because they didn't, they were right, but because I developed drive. I got the only belief that mattered. And I finally realized that humans are meant to grow and get better at something. And I just have to apply myself. And the same is true for you. Decide what you wanna get good at and go after it with everything you've got. And that, my friends, is how you overcome negativity.